When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us snow. You can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. The adrenaline type creature. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers. Three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, everybody. Rob has been moving grand pianos. All weekend. Oh, God. Why did you bring it back up, man? I was just starting to relax oh, and settle in. And you, you almost dropped some, you almost dropped your grand piano in a koi pond. Yeah, we almost launched it right in, right mm-hmm. into Alan Jackson's koi pond, which would have been awesome. That actually would have been awesome for probably about just a few minutes. Probably it, would have probably been pretty amazing until the reality sank in. No, in about three or four years from now, it would be awesome. It would yeah. be a great story, <laughs> but I'd be having a really bad day today. I dropped a grand piano into Alan Jackson's koi pond. <laughs> Probably killed a few koi at the same time. I would have just quit and walked home. If that had happened. <laughs> All the way from Franklin, <laughs> yeah, like thirty, like a that's a thirty-minute drive, dude. You'd probably be home in like three days or something. I don't care. <laughs> but anyway, I do want to say that we have. We have we have crossed the threshold, my friend. Oh yeah, you know, I've never been too big on the Twitter, so I do post on Twitter the show and all that stuff. And we do have a guest online, if anybody could probably hear. Um, but I just wanted to say this first. This is amazing. Uh, I post about uh, the episode one eighty two with Ren Collier, and I got a response. Oh yeah, from a Brandy Humans. And she says, hi, smiley face. 
I'm looking for a sex. Come to me. And then she gives her website. So, Dude, you've made it. I think we've made it. Yeah, <laughs> I think we've made it as podcasting. Well, don't so, let this don't let this fame go to your head, Adam. Yeah, no, I, mean, I don't know, man. I guess all all the, all the chicks are starting to flock now. You know, you start living that rock star lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be just like Kid Rock, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we do have a guest on the line, and I, I wanted to get this guest on, Mr. Craig Ciccone. We've had Craig on in the past. Um, we had him talking last year about the Kennedy assassination with John Tenney. We've had Craig on talk about some other historical historical aspects um, of conspiracy theory and some other subjects. Uh, but I wanted to get him on because we wanted to talk about this Vietnam War documentary. And I watched this thing. It's about it. It's a ten part documentary that PBS aired. It's a Ken Burns documentary. And I was very impressed by it. I thought it was pre- if if it is not the best since the Civil War, that you know the Civil War documentary, then it's his best ever. Because I mean, it just it is very well worth seeing. But before it came out, there was a couple of people out there that I saw on Facebook that were talking about how is it going to go into Kennedy and Vietnam and whether or not Kennedy wanted to get out of Vietnam. And that's kind of what we're going to discuss. We do have some other guests coming on later. So this is going to be kind of like a dual guest show, something we haven't done in a while. So, Craig, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Thank you very much, sir. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to speak with you guys. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Um, so I have watched the documentary. You you have watched at least the second part pertaining to what we're going to talk about. Right. And my question is, this is kind <laughs> of a... I mean, this is this subject is kind of debatable in some ways. Um, there are there is some proof that Kennedy wanted to actually pull out of Vietnam, but I kind of want to just go down like kind of what the history of Kennedy and Vietnam. What was the relationship there? What did he want to accomplish, and how did things change? Okay. Um, well, before I answer that, because that, that is that is quite a quite a, a broad question, and and, and right. I will certainly answer it. I think it's important to establish right from the from the get go, because as I've said on your podcast before, my role as a historian, uh, especially amongst high schoolers, is to try to bridge the gap between the then and the now, because so many people don't see the relevance of history, or at least the study of history, which is why a majority of Students, once they get into college, never take another history course again. Uh, in recent uh, events, uh, I'm speaking of the campaign of the 2016 election, presidential election, there was a lot of uh, attention brought to one of Hillary Clinton's um, revelations or statements that she held private thoughts that were contrary to her public thoughts. And I didn't understand where that criticism came into being, why a public official, especially a high public official, couldn't have a public stance on it, but then retain some private notion of that same subject. Because in my experience, especially with, well, we're talking about presidents, we're talking about presidential policy in in a very pivotal time, 
Kennedy is a perfect example of that, where on on several divisive issues, he held public, you know, uh, press conferences and statements, uh, which were different than those that he held in private. Um, the 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 one that most people would be familiar with is uh, during the the uh, Bay of Pigs. Uh, uh, invasion in, in April of 1961. That was a perfect example of that, where publicly he took responsibility for it. And he said, this is on me. Yeah. And, and I'm responsible for its success or failure. In this case, it was a failure, which won him a lot of, a lot of praise from the press. But privately, he blamed solely the CIA for misleading mm-hmm. him and for not giving him an, the correct intelligence to make a, a, a better choice. Which, which led to the firing of the top two officials in the CIA, and we can go from there. But it's, it's a perfect example of that. And his policy in Vietnam is the same kind of thing as we'll get into. The second point I wanted to make was that I think that we're talking about the lessons in Vietnam again, not because there's a particular uh, anniversary, although it did co- correspond with, with, you know, you could say that it was somewhat of an anniversary of the Vietnam War. But because we, because of the lessons that we should have learned in Vietnam, as it pertains to our current 16-year war in Afghanistan, right? It's it's you know the lessons that we should have learned in Vietnam should have guided us in in our policies towards uh, Afghanistan and the Middle East. But apparently, it is not because we are still embroiled in a 16-year war in that country. So I just I wanted to get that out there. But Kennedy was, as far as his uh, history with the Vietnam War, it started when he was a congressman in 1948, when he actually went to Indochina for himself. So here is this this wide-eyed, you know, newly elected representative, and uh, you know, fresh out of an Ivy League school where you know they debated such things. But as far as Cold War policy, because we're post-war, and he, of course, was a was a was a war veteran, a World War II veteran. So. <clears throat> even with his uh, belief, strong, strongly held beliefs that the Cold War was real and that it was a, a detriment to the United States and, and our foreign policy and even our way of life, you still had him even then when the French were embroiled, not the United States, but the French. He came to the conclusion that uh, the French shouldn't be there. Because post-World War II meant the liberation of many colonized countries, whether we're talking about uh, Southeast Asia, whether we're talking about India, whether we're talking about uh, Africa or, or South America. It was the, we fought this war, this world war, for the liberation, for the, for the advancement of democracy and for autonomy. And how can we talk about that as the victors if we still have these colonies all over the world? So I think that 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 he he got a, a very <laughs> uh, explicit lesson when he went to into China that early on, and I think that guided him through his thinking about Southeast Asia when he was a senator and then ultimately as president. So he inherited quite a bit when he became president in 1960, and took office in 1961, just like he inherited the plan for the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. And just like he inherited the 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 Cold War battle that that uh, that culminated in in the um, in the showdown with Nikita Khrushchev 
uh, at uh, for the missiles of October in 1962. Um, well, I think a little, so a little, a little bit of background here, right? Like, certainly. so, like the you know, he comes in 1961. Eisenhower administration had, I mean, like the French are out of there by 55, 1955, and they yes. and, and they divide the country. <clears throat> yes, straight down the middle. Here's your compromise. Yeah, we know that we know that you have competing factions in the north and the south, and we're just going to draw this arbitrary line, just like we did in Korea. Yep, different parallels, but you know, we're we're going to divide the country in half and see if you guys can't get along. Because the idea, of course, was to not let a country become wholly communist. It's much better to have at least a part of it that claims to be a democracy than to have the whole thing be a communist uh, country. Right, and they were supposed to have an election, but that never yes. actually happened. It just kept getting well, delayed a and delayed. Well, election, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was the whole idea, was that for the, for the South Vietnam to, to establish their own uh, government um, that would, in fact, be democratic. And what that, what that, what that translates to is um, friendly to U.S. interests. Right. Let, let's be honest. Yeah. That's the only time that... that as far as our foreign policy is concerned, that we consider it a friendly government. If it's friendly to us, if it's friendly to U.S. interests and business interests. So, yes, they were supposed to, and, and um, the U.S.-backed uh, DM wasn't quite as democratic as we were hoping he would be, as it turned out. Yeah. And that's where you have, like, so he was Catholic and the... There's a lot of struggle with the Buddhists, and that's where you get kind of that famous, you know, the picture of the the, <clears throat> the Buddhist guy, uh, the Buddhist monk setting himself yeah, on Quan fire Doc. and all that. Yeah. Yes, yes. In in June of '63, Quan Doc, very uh, a Buddhist, uh, in a very public display, um, set himself on fire in in protest uh, of the treatment of Buddhists. I mean, this is this is a country that's 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 a majority of Buddhists. But yet the leader, the self-proclaimed leader, and his administration and his generals were, were pro-Catholic and were Catholic. Right. And so the, the restraints that they put on pro, not, not, just, not just Buddhists and the practice of Buddhism, but also anyone who came out in support of that cause. We're talking students, we're talking protesters, we're talking anyone. They too were round up and were, were jailed. At the very, at the very best, you know. But um, yeah, so so he it, it was it, it created this vacuum of of uh, dissent, and and it, it it sent it sent the U.S. advisors and and policymakers and administrations into a quandary of of what is better. Um, can can we get DM to loosen up? His, his stranglehold uh, on power? Can we get him to be more diplomatic to his own people? Or if left to his own devices, is he going to just fall by himself and would anything that replaced him? And when we say anything, we're talking about generals. Yeah. We're not talking about another political party because there wasn't another political party right? You know, un- under the DM regime. So we're talking about a military coup. We're talking about generals. And would generals be any better equipped to keep the South at least somewhat whole as, as a counter to, to the North and the Communist Party. So 
And there were no easy answers at that point. <clears throat> and you had the Viet Cong coming up at the same time, the the communist uh, guerrilla movement in the South, and they uh, they began to kind of take over the countryside. Yes. So we have to send yes. our advisors in there. Yeah, yeah. When we're talking about the "quote unquote" Viet Cong and their in, their ability to infiltrate the South and to and to sow dissent and, and fractions uh, in the South, they were very successful at that. Um, but again, with with the ever rising power grabs of Diem and his brother, um, nepotism in the, in the worst form. Uh, you had military generals, DM's own military generals, fortifying themselves and plans to overthrow him. So it, it was incredibly unstable, I, yeah. no, no doubt about it. And it, it wasn't because the French weren't there anymore, or because we didn't have enough advisors there, or we didn't have enough of a you know, because it was it was a constant battle between. For, for the natives of Vietnam, it's it's that constant battle of well, what's worse, DM or the Americans? Because the the question ten years earlier was what's worse, DM or French? Mm-hmm. So, so it wasn't necessarily a civil war between the North and the South. It was trying to stabilize the South, which of course was was difficult to do when you again had victors of a war coming in and arbitrarily dividing the country in lines that, that, that the country culturally had never known before. Right. So again, there were no, there were no easy, uh, easy solutions here. And, and that, that's what Kennedy was facing. And Kennedy personally was, was balancing, uh, what he understood, uh, as far as geopolitics are concerned, and his own conscience and what he had seen and what his advisors were saying. And of course, even his advisors were, were divided. Um, but that's, that's, that's why there is no clear, uh, you know, Oh, here, here, here is, here's the definite proof that Kennedy was in fact going to withdraw because it's incomplete. His record is incomplete, not only because of his death, but because of documents and, and other oral histories that have yet to be released. But, the record as it stands now shows a majority of, of those documents and those oral histories and those personal recordings showing that, yes, Kennedy had made a decision and that all plans had to reflect that decision. And those decisions were a thousand troops out, troops, advisors, sorry, a thousand yeah. advisors out by the end of 1963 and all the rest of 16,000 advisors out by 65. So, so I don't think it was a matter of, did Kennedy believe that if he had pulled out the advisors that South Vietnam would fall to communism and to the influence of China? I think for him, it was a matter of, um, can the people of Vietnam be autonomous? And, and regardless of what that means for us, can, can, they, can they do that on their own? Now, it's, it's studying history. I, I know that uh, early on in his administration, like I think 61, that Kennedy was actually sending aid to Laos, which of course is right next door. Yes. Um, aid, how- yes. But, but, they, but we were still 
just like all of our other administra- administrations had been, and up until Nixon, yeah, the Kennedy and Johnson administration were were vehemently. I, I mean, they were rigidly uh, complying with not going to, into Laos or Cambodia. Because mm-hmm. you're talking about you're talking about the autonomy, you know, and the sovereignty of these countries that had nothing to do with this. So we weren't sending advisors in there. We were sending aid because North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, the so-called Viet Cong, were in fact entrenched in Laos, and we knew we couldn't go in there. But they were still making life pretty miserable for, uh, you know, the people of Laos. So we were put sending in aid, not not military advisors. Yeah, they had the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which went through Laos and Cambodia down into the South exactly. Vietnam. Yeah. And so, it, what was the what was the name of that, uh, or the I guess the the number of that declaration that said that they wanted to pull the the advisors out by 1965? Well, that was uh, what we refer to as uh, NASAM or National yeah. Security Action Memorandum 263, and this was in early October, and this was after Kennedy's. Um, Labor Day interview with Walter Cron- Cronkite, right? Uh, in which he says that in the final analysis, it's their war; they're going to have to win it or lose it. Um, but at, in that very same interview, uh, he still had a posture of Cold War mentality, of hawkish Cold War mentality, that we can't let Vietnam fall to China. Yeah. You know, China was still very much uh, even more so than than the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union wasn't interested in Southeast Asia; they were interested in Europe. So we had our problems with Russia over there. Our problem in Southeast Asia Asia was was China and communist China, and and so it wasn't just a Cold War between us and the Soviet Union; it was a Cold War between us and anyone who threatened to be communist, which was also China. <clears throat> so, a National Action Security Memorandum 263 in early October of 1963 uh, outlined those plans, those de- definitive plans to withdraw advisors for, by the end of 63 and then ultimately by the end of 65. Now, you, there's the coup um, that's not in November 2nd, 1963, the, the where they overthrow GM. Yes, well, and- it was actually November 1st, but yeah. How do they? How do they? How does that? Does that change things somewhat for Kennedy? Well, <clears throat> Kennedy, um, as well as well, uh, Kennedy didn't. He could not explicitly promote the coup. Um, he said, if a coup were to occur, then we wouldn't do anything to stop it, but we can't do anything to facilitate it either. So he knew of it and allowed it to happen. I, I, I'm not going to say he gave his blessing because I don't think it was really a blessing. I don't think he saw it as such. But he, <clears throat> in a private uh, um, dictation, um, I believe it was November 11th or around there, just a, a two weeks before he himself was killed, uh, expressed re- regret at having given his quote-unquote okay because he was not, he was naive enough to think, or to believe the generals, that those that were about to overthrow Diem and his brother uh, would allow them to leave the country. 
that is DM and his brother were going to say, yes, okay, we're going to surrender, but just let us leave the country alive. You know, you can have, you could have South Vietnam, but you know, let us go into exile. And under those pretexts, they surrendered and then they were murdered shortly after. Kennedy was also naive enough to think that the generals would let both DM and his brother live. And so I think that's what he expressed most of the regret about is his naivete and the fact that he didn't do more to to safeguard DM and his brother. There had to be a feeling of just like this this country is gonna descend into some kind of chaos that they couldn't well, maintain it, was, it, it. Yeah, but that was gonna happen whether DM was in, yeah. in office or in power or not. And I think that <clears throat> again, it becomes a question of is it easier to deal with DM or his generals? And um, and ultimately, Kennedy had to be confronted with the idea of withdraw with victory or withdraw without victory. And when you consider that he was a Cold War uh, hawk in believing in the domino theory that if one communist country, you know, if a country falls to communism, the next one will, the next one will, the next one will, and then all of a sudden New York is communist. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though he believed that, um, for him it was ultimately, can we quote-unquote win this? Well, what's a victory? Is a victory, um, can, can, it be, can, it be, can it be arrived at through military might or diplomacy? And Kennedy had already shown his not only his willingness, but his ability for diplomacy, for being able to work out. Look, we almost we almost blew ourselves off the face of this earth, yeah, because right. of the missiles that were put into Cuba in October of 1962, and it was primarily because of his cool-headed, um, thoughtful, cogent diplomacy that prevented even an accident from happening. It's not, it's, you know, we can't think of the, the missiles of October as simply, you know, uh, this, this nuclear showdown. It could have just been an accident and we could have been obliterated. Yeah. But again, because of his diplomacy, because of his ability to listen to lots of different sides. And I'm not talking about people who agreed with him. He specifically employed and, and sought, people who disagreed with him for that very reason. Find as many, um, you know, uh, pieces of advice as you can and make the best decision. And Kennedy had already shown that, that he, he was fully capable of doing that. So I think he took that same, um, same stance in Vietnam where you've got his entire administration that couldn't come to a, to an agreement of what to do. But ultimately, he was he was prepared to withdraw from Vietnam without "quote unquote" victory, which is ultimately what what Nixon, President Nixon, said we wouldn't do. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, peace without honor. <laughs> peace without honor means that we lose. We lose again. You know, we came perilously close to losing during the Korean War. So. I think that there were I think that there were there were uh, factions in our government who did not want to let this go either. Uh, you know, even as a draw. <laughs> right. You know, Kennedy was prepared to, for it to be a draw, but but I don't I don't think the military was. I don't I don't think or or even 
you know, uh, the CIA was right. prepared to, because look, we're coming out, we're beating our chests. We've, we've got a nice big thick erection after world war two because we saved the world. <laughs> and now we are a world power. And, um, what does that, what does that say about, about our virility as a country on the world stage? If we let Korea go, I mean, I don't mean let it go. That's a, that's, that's way too much of a sophomore term, but you know, allow it not to be the victory that we're supposed to have, uh, compared to say world war two. And it's the same thing in Vietnam. What we, we can't handle that. We handled Hitler, we handled Japan, but we can't handle this. Yeah, absolutely not. What, yeah. How are we going to look on the world stage? Where's our credibility going to be? So that's what he was fighting. That's, that's what he was. Well, not fighting. He was, he had to contend with it. He had to deal with it. But I have no doubt whatsoever that that he was the person, he was the kind of president, unlike Johnson, who who could allow diplomacy to really work its magic, regardless of it, whether it was GM or generals or or another U.S. backed regime. About the CIA and their involvement in Vietnam. Had it they had it there been a, a a significant investment that they had that they had put a lot they had put a lot of energy into into South Vietnam fighting that war there a lot of covert uh, activities that were going on. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, you, yeah. you've got to realize that most of the intelligence that we got out of Vietnam from from the end of World War II, when when Vietnam was trying to liberate itself from French from the French. We had CIA advisors there, uh, not only to assess the the country itself, uh, but also in in uh, aiding the French. The French didn't do it alone. Believe me, they had yeah. they had the help of other countries, and including the U- U.S. And it was mostly CIA. And then, as as we got closer, you know, through the Truman administration and certainly Eisenhower, the CIA. Uh, which was now in full force because it was, you know, it was a brand new um, agency, and it was, and it was, it it had its charter, it had its power, and it was, and it was looking to consolidate and to and to really make its mark and to show how important it was, not only was, but was going to be in the future, which then led to President Eisenhower saying, "Okay, we got to be, we got, we got to watch these guys." We've we've really let the dog off the leash on this one, okay? Uh, we we have to be vigilant against the military industrial complex that seeks to make its own foreign policy, and uh, you, you know increase its power. Uh, so again, that's one of the things that that Kennedy inherited, uh, and just looking at Kennedy's administration and the CIA's involvement in in other hot spots around the world and how they led to catastrophic decisions like the Bay of Pigs and CIA advisors, military advisors who were advising Kennedy to just go blow the shit out of, out of the, the Soviet missiles in Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's the same thing with Vietnam where, where president Kennedy came up or his advisors came up with NASM uh, 263 the CIA and the military advisors came up with Op Plan 34, which was just an operational plan. That's that's that was the the acronym for it, which called for covert 
operations in South and North Vietnam to to um, create this tension and these and these fissures within either the the DM regime or uh, their own devisements that they could then blame on the Viet Cong or North Viet- Vietnam. Uh, and the, uh, it was, it was the op plan 34 a and B that ultimately in the Johnson administration led to the Gulf of Tonkin, where you instigate something to happen. Then you can turn around and say, well, you see how aggressive they are. Now we have to send troops in to quell that to, we, you know, uh, U.S. military service men and women were killed, so we have to go in and, and, and avenge them. So that was the Gulf of Tonkin, and that's what allowed Congress to give Johnson the the war powers that he he sought, or right. at least the military sought. So right. you have in Kennedy, you have a president who already met with so much derision and and um, consternation from his very advisors because he was quote unquote soft on the Soviet response to, um, to the, the, the October missile crisis that you also have. Now you've got advisors who think that he's going soft on Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And if it sounds precariously close to suggesting that that's why Kennedy was killed, well, there's a reason for that. Cause I believe that's why Kennedy was killed. So that was going to be my next question. Cause you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of the the movie JFK and mm-hmm. that becomes pretty much the crux of that movie is that Kennedy was killed because he wanted to pull out of Vietnam. Right. Well, I think we, we may have talked about this in, in other podcasts in, in mm-hmm. which we were talking about the Kennedy assassination, but mm-hmm. it, it, it really is important to remember that JFK, the movie was not so much the advancement of one theory. Right. I think that Oliver Stone used this docudrama and the vehicle of Jim Garrison and his investigation into Kennedy's assassination and ultimately the only public trial to ever be held concerning President Kennedy's assassination that explores all of the possible you know, I mean, it's it's the one thing we didn't do when Kennedy was killed. I mean, we were mourning, and it was so shocking, and it was so paralyzing and debilitating that I don't think the country was poised to be able to say, wait a minute, you know, who benefited from this? So we didn't ask that question at that point as a country, as a, as a collective. We didn't say, who would have wanted to kill him? Because we just wanted to get over it. We wanted the pain to stop. We wanted... The, the, all the promise and the and the you know uh, of of the youth and the future to be retained in Camelot. So we didn't ask these difficult questions. It was yeah. it was much easier for us to say, yeah, okay, some some you know shit nut you know commie sympathizer got up into into a building and took a pot shot at the president and just happened to hit him and and kill him. That was so much easier than to really look at. Um, those in power, why they're in power, what they're doing with that power. Um, you know, if you look at it again, um, dispassionately, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about men in power and what will they do to retain that power? So they looked at Kennedy as weak and as, as 
again, he said publicly that he was a cold warrior and that he was going to, you know, increase military spending and he was going to make sure that, that, that military bases remained open and the technology was going to advance as far as chemical weapons and weapons in general. But then privately, here's this guy who is seeking detente with Cuba and with the Soviet Union. And in a very short period of time, I mean, that, you get, you got to realize how, how short of a time Kennedy was in office and how many um, philosophical toes he stepped on. Yeah, because it wasn't even three years. It wasn't. It was so, like two so, years again, and a few each, months, yeah. It, right. So each year that he's in office, he's basically making, you know, mil- or diplomatic detente with Cuba. <sighs> one year, then the Soviet Union the next year, and, and you know, nu- nuclear non-proliferation agreements, and, hey, Khrushchev, let's, let's meet again here in Washington, you know, instead of Vienna, and let's, let's really talk about Cold War and the policies that, that we're creating because of this philosophical, you know, war. Well, it's <laughs> funny. It's not doing us, <clears throat> it's not doing us any, any of us any good. So I, I'd rather again diplomacy with our biggest enemy and and his and and the top military hawks are saying okay this 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 isn't going to work. How, how can we be how can we be a world power if we if we you know subject ourselves or or um, subordinate ourselves to the other world power? So. Yeah, but it just ended up we got into this war that we really had no goals. In, there were know, no right, absolutely. You know, like the like during the the Johnson administration, you had uh, oh, who was the not McNamara, the 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 general. It's slipping my mind. The the one that Maxwell was Maxwell Taylor. Uh, no, before him. Uh I hate it when this happens. Lansdale. No, get this, the okay. the main general that was over there during Johnson. But he had he had this. Uh, you know, their their whole idea was that, and this I didn't really know until I watched this documentary, was the body count thing. So yeah, if, yeah. if we kill more Viet Cong than, than our, our North Vietnamese troops, then they killed, uh, then, we're, then, then, then what we lost, then that meant we were, then we're winning. winning. Then we're winning. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And, and I think that Kennedy was entirely too smart to to put... Uh, such such confidence in in that kind of in that kind of uh, perspective of of a battle. I think that our our politicians and 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 even in some circles, our our military generals and and even intelligence agents were slowly realizing that conventional wars we weren't going to be conve- we weren't going to be fighting conventional wars anymore, at right. least not in that part of the world. That there was such a network of guerrilla uh, insurgency that simply could not be um, uh, anticipated or or fully understood. You know, how do you go into a country that you're completely unfamiliar with anyway uh, and differentiate between North and South? It's like going into North Carolina and South Carolina. How the hell would you tell the difference between a North Carolinian and a South Carolinian? <laughs> right. But yet there are North Carolinians who are in the South and killing South Carolinians because they want to be one Carolina. You know, it, yeah, it, it was yeah. that kind of thing, and so frustrating. So the it, conventional war didn't work anymore. And it was or like the it, you know the way the North saw it. They saw it as 
Well, it was less about communism and more about, well, you know, we're, we're fighting for our country. We want to unite our country and we want to, absolutely. you know, we, we don't care how long it takes. We're going to keep fighting. Yeah. And, 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 uh, they had a goal. They had a goal. Yeah. That was the whole point. That was the whole mm-hmm. point is that, is that you're talking about, you know, whether it's Ho Chi Minh or about the tongue, both schooled here in the United States, right? And DM, so they understood the, the 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 underpinnings of American democracy, and at least the the flighty uh, written on paper mottos. We've got to live up to those. Okay, so they're they're using our documents, our founding documents, as a model for their own country. Even though, of course, economically and culturally, yeah. they they have different views, but. Um, when you're talking about somebody as smart as as um, uh, Ho Chi Minh, um, and as and as passionate as he is about liberation and about freedom, all the things he learned here in the United States and through our founding documents, that's what he his his goal was was to liberate his country from oppressive because Vietnam had been occupied for how many hundreds of years by how many you know half a dozen countries. And, so, and like essentially, so, if you go back to the American Revolution, we did the same thing, right? Absolutely. You know, the British took yeah, over absolutely. every major city in in the country. Every major city, yep. they took them over. But you know, talk about absolutely. South and North Carolina, they took over Charleston. You know, they took over Savannah. They took over all that stuff. But yet, you and know, what we, happened? we were still in the country. You know, fighting fighting the British because we were like, well, we want our country. You know, that's we don't yep. want to be part of them anymore. And so it yep. was the or, same or, thing, you know, or 50 years later when the British said, well, okay, we lost the 13 colonies, but how about the other, you know, the other land on North America? We want that. And we said, no, you can't have that. You know, so mm-hmm. we fought for that too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so, uh, similarities in history. I think that there. idea, I think that idea gets lost in that, in that if you look at it again, dispassionately, you take out all of the details, all of the geopolitical details, you're talking about a leader of a very proud and a very accomplished country saying we want to be able to, to, um, uh, control our own future, our own destiny. We want the, the, the autonomy and, and the sovereignty to, to make our own choices and the will of the people. And of course you can't have an argument about that. At least politically you can't have an argument about that. And it's important to realize that even President Kennedy outlined that vision for other countries like Cuba, like Soviet Union, like Vietnam, in his address to the American University on June 10th. Yeah. Okay, we keep, we keep playing little clips, you know, little sound bites of that address um, as, as some of the most important words ever uttered by a politician in American history. That was an amazing speech. And I would rank that in the top five of, of the speeches that, that President Kennedy gave, in which he was basically signaling not only to the world, but also to American citizens that, that this is the vision that we have for the world, not, not where uh, we control the destiny of other countries, but we, we allow them to control their own. And we fight for that principle. Right. That 
that why, why am I, why am I, um, negotiating with a tyrant like Khrushchev or, or Fidel Castro, because we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we are all mortal. And I think this also would have, you could even see this civil rights undertones in that. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that it's for our own citizens here in the United States. When we look at someone who has a different skin color, you know, Think, think of, of those five things that we all share on this planet. So, and that, that, that foreign policy and domestic policy was going to reflect those visions that he outlined in that address. You know, about, about Johnson, you know, I mean, I, in many ways, I, I kind of like Johnson because, you know, here's a man that signed the Civil Rights Act, signed the Voting Rights right. Act, started the war on poverty, the idea of the Great Society. But all that was kind of squandered by what happened in Vietnam. Like, Vietnam just overshadows anything else oh, that he agreed. did. Oh, agreed. And quite frankly, you could say the same thing about Richard Nixon. Yeah, Is that's that, true. You know, once, once we put boots on the ground, once we committed ourselves like that, any president that touched this, unless unless he did in fact withdraw, was was going to be the death knell for for that presidency. So, um, yeah, Johnson's contributions, his own, and we're not even talking about. Well, you, you mentioned it first: the Civil Rights Act and the Voters' Rights Act of '65. <clears throat> these were these were these were Kennedy's babies or at least the ones that so many people were, were pressing him, you know, to, to take care of before, you know, before the next election. And I think, unfortunately, Kennedy was not only naive, he was also, if you want to use the word pragmatic, it was all about public perception and timing. Um, and in that, in that aspect, he was a consummate politician. And sometimes timing means that people suffer until you're ready to get off your ass and, and do what's right, do what your conscience tells yeah. you to do. You know what I mean? And that's that constant struggle. That Well, I want to do this, but I can't do this if I'm not in office. And if I try to do this now with public sentiment the way that it is, regardless of how we got to that public sentiment, regardless of if we can change that public sentiment, if I do this now, they will vote my ass out of office and I won't be able to do it. So again, it goes back to the whole private versus public stances on things, whether we're talking about abortion or gun control or any of the hot button topics. In Kennedy's day, it was civil rights. And of course, when you've got hoses being turned on our own citizens and their clothes ripped from their bodies from water or from gun or from uh, dogs, or they're being shot because they're trying to, to get people to register to vote, um, that's what Kennedy was was faced with. The the uh, until until the the turmoil of the summer of '63, I don't think that it was. I don't think that that the country knew just how bad it was for such a big portion of 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 our populace. Yeah. But when they saw for themselves, well, just like just like when we reported in Vietnam and when we allowed all that film to come back from Vietnam, only then did people realize how bad Vietnam was. It was the same thing with civil rights. You know, so, I'm I, was, sorry, I, I, I went off on a tangent. Yeah. So, yeah. Johnson's, I, I, Johnson's accomplishments for the, for civil rights 
that was that would have been done by Kennedy had he lived. But you're you're right. Johnson's policies, the the Great Society, completely overshadowed by Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> that, that's that's very true. The um, you mentioned to me when we were texting back and forth about you coming on about uh, Noam Chomsky's viewpoints on yeah. this. Now, yeah, does he hold a different he, viewpoint he, like, on this? Yeah, his his work basically came out in response to not only JFK, Dollar Stone's JFK, but um, one of the books that it was based upon uh, was uh, John Newman's book on JFK in Vietnam. Yeah, these were based on uh, recently released documents, or or at least the uh, the discovery that documents are are missing or not released yet. So it was it was an answer to that, and Noam Chomsky. Um, well, I don't think he was happy with any administration because I think that you could, in fact, make a make a an argument that from our very inception, that is the, the United States, from our very inception, <clears throat> in the founding documents, not only hypocrisy, but also just play for power, and that it, that it had nothing to do with with the rights of people or or the serenity of society. It was all about power and the concentration thereof. So his his view of Kennedy in Vietnam, I think, was a reaction against those people who were close to Kennedy. Uh, Sorensen, uh, Schlesinger, uh, Galbraith, um, you know, anyone who had a memoir about Kennedy and elevated him into this Camelot status. It was Noam Chomsky's intention to say, uh, no, <laughs> he was just like any other politician. He was like all the other presidents in dealing with third world countries in a very oppressive and um, barbaric way. Uh, the way. The way Noam Chomsky described it was he went from terror to conflict, to armed conflict. You know, so he, Kennedy, even Kennedy himself, escalated the the uh the situation in vietnam hmm. so let's let's dispense with all the niceties about this young president who's now a martyr let's let's look at let's look at the record um soberly and see kennedy for the war hawk that he was so that was his that was his stance just a little speculation craig before we end this section um okay if kennedy had lived yes so pretty much you think that we would not have gotten involved with Vietnam. How different would things be? And I know well, counterfactual yeah, we... arguments are hard because like, <laughs> you know, chaos theory, the, you know, the wings of the butterfly is always going to take over. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. you know, it, it, if we, if, if Kennedy stayed in in 64 and if he wasn't shot and he got reelected in 64, you know, would we have had a Vietnam War? Would we have had all that turmoil and right. everything that kind of comes after? <clears throat> well, yeah, as historians, we like to deal with what we can establish through either, you know, primary sources and documentation. And so, but it's fun. I, I guess that's that's just a human... <clears throat> I mean, Stephen King, way, Stephen King wrote 112263. 
You know, the book about yeah. the time travel? Yes, yes. You know, yes, the, the exactly. time, okay, I'll give it away. So, spoiler alert, don't listen <laughs> if you don't want to hear it. But, like, so he comes back, he, he saves <coughs> Kennedy, right? And, of course, right. you know, King is convinced that it was Oswald alone and all that. But he saves Kennedy, right. and he comes back to the present day, and there had been, like, a nuclear war, and, exactly. uh, you know, it was a disaster. So he had to go back and, and not save Kennedy or <laughs> right, you know, right. let it happen. Yep. Right. Yeah, but but <clears throat> I guess <clears throat> we like to think that we could have done better had things been different. So yes, we look at this young president who who galvanized this country, um, you know, and who really let the young people see the hope and the promise of of the future and of helping other people and so forth and so on and and public. Um, public service and and so forth and so on and, and and I don't think it's it's I don't think it's it's inappropriate to say what might have happened because of everything that did happen once Kennedy was killed. Again, if you look at what he already did in the very short time, I'm not saying that when he became president he was this you know monolith. He was this you know. He was already a superior statesman. He wasn't. He yeah. still had a lot to learn, and he was learning it as he went. But what saved us from catastrophe, what saved us from from uh, events that really would have been irretractable, like Vietnam or like nuclear war, was his ability to... Well, as a historian, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's important that, that you know whatever president we have... Has, is very steeped in history, because that's how we learn from our past mistakes. And his history, his reading of it, his willingness to listen to other people, conflicting uh, opinions, um, and then going to the people he trusted the most and saying, this is what I plan to do, what do you think, and, and, and let's do it. Uh, and his capacity for that, I think, only would have grown we were starting to see it as far as civil rights, his civil civil rights stance. We already saw it in Cuba. We saw it in Soviet Union, so forth and so on. I think we would have seen it in Vietnam. I I do not believe that he would have held on to that hawkish, we've got to have a military victory in order for it to be a success. He would have allowed for diplomacy to happen. Uh, he had a he had a great deal of of uh, confidence in um, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the new ambassador to Vietnam. Um, and I think that diplomacy would have been exhausted as far as that's concerned. I, I, you know, so would we have had the same kind of Vietnam war? I don't think so. I don't think he would have committed troops because I think he already suspected that it was not going to be a conventional war. He already publicly and privately stated that it can't be won this way. We, if we train them, it's one thing. If we show them how to do it, if we give them weapons, that's one thing. But then again, of course, Noam Chomsky would argue that's that's escalating it. You know, when you when you uh, uh, you know encourage people to you know to fight a war by money or weapons, you're 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 part of it. But but I I don't think it would have been, of course, the same Vietnam War. It certainly wouldn't have been the same. Um, canvas on on our domestic front too yeah as far as civil rights as far as you know um 
education or any of the other liberation movements that happened in the 1960s. I think there would have been a, a great deal more cooperation and, and solution-seeking and problem-solving. Because you're talking about the best and the brightest, which, again, a lot of people criticize Kennedy for or criticize his best and the brightest, uh, and whether that, you know, whether that, that was an accurate depiction of Kennedy's uh, advisory council. We're talking about the ones who were problem solvers, not not necessarily power grabbers or um, worried more about their um, jobs or their egos. I think they they really were serious diplomats and um, serious prob- problem solvers. Yeah, and so that in and of itself would have taken a completely different road, South Asian road, Southeast Asian road. Yeah, it's a good assessment. Um, just real quick, I wanted to ask you this uh, before I let you go. This movie, sure. this movie Detroit that came out not too long ago. Yeah, uh, I figured that you might know something about this. What is that about? Because I had never heard of that. It 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 is a it is a biopic about the uh, rebellion that happened in July of nineteen sixty seven. Uh, most people call it a riot, but it is more accurately portrayed as a rebellion, an uprising of, of again, a, 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 a not decades long, but centuries long oppressed people that came to a head because we have never seriously dealt with the quote unquote race issue in our country. We still have not dealt with it, even after all of those uprisings and rebellions, um, which which we see today in 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 the police brutality and people's reactions to it. Hell, even people's reactions to a black man kneeling during a fucking football game. Excuse me, but it, it's um, noted down. Rob. But Detroit was supposed to show a, a particular incident during the rebellion, in which uh, several young men were trapped uh, by police in a hotel called the Al- Algiers Motel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically opened fire on the, on the, the building because they thought that a sniper had shot at them from that building, even though no shots had come from that building. And of course, black bodies are trapped in there and their, uh, response, their initial response was, you know, the only way to deal with black danger is to kill it. And unfortunately, 40 years later, 50 years later, we're, we're, we still have that mentality. But that's what the movie was about, the Algiers Motel incident. Okay, yeah, I, and, I'd never heard of that before. I, I didn't even, I mean, right. I knew about the riots, but I never had heard right. of that particular case. Yeah, and, and its depiction is like most depictions, either whether it's, whether it's a docudrama or whether it's a documentary. It's less about or causes and effects of public policy or policing or economic status and educational status of a large majority uh, or a large portion of our, our populace. And it's more about the dramatization of the deaths of black people. It's, it's what I, it's, it's not what I, just what I called it. You know, that's their version of black porn is that if you can watch black bodies being shot up, that that's, that that's the point of the story, not how we got to that point, not the aftermath of that, not, you know, it's just the drama of that. 
Yeah. So I think D- Detroit as a film completely missed. Did you the see? The, did you the see the movie? Point. I I I, no, I have not. I've read synopsis of it and I've read reviews yeah. of it, and I haven't seen it either. What I know of the filmmakers, I have no interest in seeing it. Gotcha, gotcha. Because it didn't it didn't explore the causes. It didn't explore the uh, the lessons that it so so urgently cried out for that we could have applied since then, even to today. And sure. until we do that, until we are willing to look at not the end result, but what got us to the end result. I mean, I guess it's it's just it's it's what it what's what sells, you know. Sort of an exploitation uh, so of tragedy. It, exactly the exploitation of tragedy, and and no more tragic of a story. Uh, well, with the exception of Native Americans, are are black citizens, and so to watch that in, you know, in high definition and special effect horror, you know, is, is that really going to change people's minds? Is that going to make them more sympathetic? Yeah. Hmm. Or is it the back? Is it the background of those young men? What were they doing before then? You know, and what were what were what was the plight of black citizens prior to this that got them to that point? Yeah. So until we start really looking at that, and as as a white society, still, um, until we we examine our own prejudices and our own mistakes, and our still to this day our own. Uh, unsympathetic nature when it comes to to uh, domestic policies. Uh, I don't think we'll ever solve, quote-unquote, solve the race issue or the race problem. So. Yeah. But I appreciate you asking me about that. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, has been on, that has been on the minds of a lot of people. Yeah, I wanted Should to I ask you about it? that. Was it good? Yeah. yeah. Rob, what do you think about some of the stuff we're talking about? Yeah. Um. I was getting a little lost on on the historical stuff. Um, <laughs> You're I, a good company, Rob. <laughs> <clears throat> I did want to. One of the first things that you had mentioned was um, the the discrepancies between people's private statements and and their public statements as politicians. <clears throat> I yeah. did. I did want to ask. I didn't want to like derail you at the time, but I wanted to ask. Do you think that the the private um, the private declarations? Do you think that that's more of their idealist state of mind? More of their um, like wishful thinking and their public um, statements are more like, well, this is what we kind of have to do regardless of how we feel about things. Well, would, would it, how about, well, let, let, let's put it back on you. Would you care if a politician did something that was right or that was beneficial to a group of people that needed that help? Would you give a shit if, if they privately said, I'm championing this, I really feel strongly about it? Would you care how it got done as long as it got done? Not at all. You know, I, I, I guess, it, and, and that's what politicians, I think, face on a daily basis. And that is the, the pragmatism, unfortunately, of such a diverse array of not only public opinion, but also of public need. How the hell do you satisfy everyone's problems or everyone's concerns? It's very difficult to do. And then, again, you say, well, if I just focus on this one group's problem, how is another group going to react to that? You know? Uh, and then will it will then lead to a backlash and um, uh, resistance 
to that uh, that initial need. So it's I think it's a, a constant battle of, of between public and private of um, will this work? Can we do it in a, in a timely fashion? And with all the partisan you know crap that's that, that's that's been shown these last few years, I mean to a T. The fact that uh, our current administration will allow people to go without health care simply because it, it's called Obamacare, you know, that they will, they will aggressively keep people from signing up for health care just because it was the previous president's, uh, you know, health care, just because they spent the last eight years trash talking it and promising to repeal it even though it's working, even though for many people, for millions of people, it, it, it provides them health care. You know what I mean? Um, and they still haven't repealed you know, it, so. Still haven't, and won't. Yeah. But, but, of course, the current administration is doing everything they can to make it harder and harder to benefit from it. So whether, whether it's cutting funding 90% for advertising or advising people how to enroll by, a certain, by, by the deadline – or whether it's directing people who are in departments of our government who are supposed to show people how to sign up for government health care. You know, they're doing everything they can to make sure that Obamacare implodes. So when Trump talks about how, how bad of a program it is and how it's imploding, yeah, it's imploding because you're making it. It's imploding because you have an active campaign, an aggressive campaign, for it to self-destruct, then you can turn around and say, see, it didn't work. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, um, the only time, I guess the only time that, that politicians, when it's, or public figures, when private and pers or private and public, uh, e either, either opinions or, or, uh, I don't know what um, morals, I guess, uh, principles, what ideas, whatever, uh, whatever that's in the, the most, the time that it's the most important is when it's contradictory to the point of it being adversarial, uh, it being disadvantaged to someone or some group. For instance, um, you know, <laughs> if you have a politician who really is balls to bones a racist. But then, but then smiles when they shake the hands of, of you know black constituents. That might be a cause because <clears throat> um, it is your conscience that allows you to to uh, introduce legislation or introduce plans to further something or fix something or uh, um, advance something. And if and if you really in public, you know, have disdain for the very people that you're trying to help or that you claim you're trying to help, that's, that's a little, you know, um, hypocritical. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it comes up a lot in election cycles too, just cause I think people worry that, um, the things that they're spouting publicly are just strictly, um, platforms to get elected, not things that they actually care about or are going to and, and and that and that is a viable that is a viable criticism, especially when you're talking about people who really don't get things done. Right. You know, if if you if you if you uh, stump for 
causes or ideas that you know will get you elected, then you turn around and don't do shit for them. Well, then, yeah, it's, it's fraud, you know, but, but then, but look at the flip side of that. And you've got, (laughs) you've got somebody like our current president who stumped for a lot of things, which he's now finding are either impossible, unrealistic or unconstitutional. (laughs) So I don't, so I don't know what's worse. Someone who, who says what they're going to do, which gets people all riled up. Ooh, ooh, he 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 says it like it is, and and he's gonna he's gonna you know, Adam, I told you this before. Um, you know, he's gonna stir things up. Well, stirring things up isn't always a good thing. If it's a cesspool, yes. If it's you know, if it's a uh, you know a picnic, it's another. It's a different thing. So, I'm more worried about the politicians who make make promises or stump for causes that um, are veiled in in things that can get people riled up and get people blaming other people for their problems, whether it's patriotism, whether it's, you know, um, a culture war, because that's basically what we're in right now. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the ideals or the principles of the people who are governing. It has to do with culture wars. Yeah. And so nothing's getting done. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's a perfect encapsulation of the last eight, nine months is nothing's gotten done. Yeah. That's a good point. But, but we've had a lot to talk about. How the hell does that work? You are ineffective and you, you have been left and right. You know, your, your policies have been unconstitutional. have been ruled unconstitutional yet. We're still talking every day about this orange creamsicle and I don't I'm not <laughs> well you, you you elect a reality TV show so you're gonna get a reality TV show you know mm-hmm. uh, a big fat dose of reality mm-hmm. absolutely and but you know are unaffected by it as far as the NFL thing goes like he is so focused on that and like that well, it's a distraction. That, yeah it is it's a huge distraction <laughs> and that in my mind is not as important as any as any of the other issues it just, it just seems but, but, like they've just found something that they can hop on and get people riled oh, up. Absolutely. Oh, Republicans are, Republicans are, are, are professionals at that, at sleight of hand and, and uh, distractions. And yes, all you have to do is wrap yourself in a flag and say patriotism, and you've got people frothing at the mouth mm-hmm. because they think that they are the real patriots. And yeah, that's right. Patriotism means nothing except antiquated tradition and a piece of cloth. And if anyone says or does anything against these two things, they are unpatriotic. Yeah, it's like we've, so, we hence we're, we're, our enemies. we're quibbling over symbols. Yeah. yeah. But you really think that, that Donald Trump is a patriot? You really? We have film clips of him not knowing that he had to put his hand over his heart. During <laughs> yeah, the I've seen those. <laughs> I've seen those. His but, wife, his yeah. wife, and an immigrant had to hit him. Right. You know, to say, get your hand on your heart. You're, you're, you're the <laughs> commander in chief. You know, so this is this is not somebody who's, you know, would you put him in a, in a patriotic category like, well, John McCain? Well, John McCain, you'd think, certainly say was uh, patriotic, but look look how Trump lambasted him. Hey, Trump doesn't like losers, okay? He doesn't That's like right. losers. Well, I think we're going to leave That's it there. Right. I think we're going to leave it there, Craig, because uh, we got to get the Otherwise, next guest on. Otherwise, hours, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. And, uh, no, any, anytime, Adam. It's always a pleasure. And, and you're still working on the book? Uh, 
Oh, I, as always, perpetually. <laughs> well, you said just like Dr. Future. So <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> he's working on his books, plural. Well, thank you, Craig. We're going to end this section, and guys, we're going to be right back to talk about some spooky stuff and some folklore with Mark Wyatt. Thanks very much, Adam. Thank you. Back on the second part of this 100, what are we at, like 184? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This 184th episode of Conspiranormal. Can you believe that? No. Uh, it's almost my three-year anniversary, too, by the way. I think it pretty much is your three-year three year anniversary. Is it? Like, the, it was around the beginning, I think it was the middle of October. <laughs> yeah, I want to say around the 20th. So, but. Yeah, well, this will be out around by the time that, so congratulations. Thank Rob. you, sir. It's, it's your three-year anniversary. It has been a pleasure. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. And hopefully there's going to be three more years and three more years after that. Yes. <laughs> Rob's like, uh, I don't know about that. I don't sign up for that. But uh, we have on the line Mark Wyatt. And uh, Mark is actually not in the UK. He's actually in the good old US of A. Or as Borat says, US and A. <laughs> and... Uh, Mark, well, well, first of all, I know that you saw it. I know that you saw my momentous post that I put up where I've crossed <laughs> I've crossed a boundary in podcasting. Yeah, you're, you're a sex god now on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, the, they want some of this uh, sex. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it just, uh, um, uh, what can I say? It's just my masculine virility. Oh, God. Uh, I've seen, yeah, I think I've seen her in my junk mail folder a few times, actually. <laughs> what? She's not real? See, now you burst oh, his bubble, Oh, don't crush Mark. my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hoping Brandy was a real person and not a, and not, and not, not a, not a Russian or Bulgarian bot. Um, welcome back to Conspirator Normal, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's good that you're here on this momentous yeah, th- occasion. Th- yeah, th- yeah, thank you very much, and ha- happy anniversary to your show. You know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 Rob's anniversary. We brought him in. Yeah, he kind of came in like, who who are these assholes? And yeah. then I listened uh, to your show a few days ago, actually, where, where you were discussing a few of your own personal experiences, and you were just. Dis- mm. It was quite interesting how Robbie got involved in the show. Yeah, yeah. We uh, it's like like it was meant to be. Yeah. It was. It was definitely meant to be. You know, if like Alyssa had never worked, it, but never started working where I worked, and then uh, all of a sudden, Rob yeah, came came to be. So here we it's are just in the ran, studio. Random chance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It works that's, out that way. Exactly. Yeah. We're sitting here just you know smoking cigars and having a good <laughs> old time. Uh, Mark, uh, happy that you've come back on. I mean, it's been, it has been, a, it has been a while, I think since last year. Now you've come actually come here to the studio and you've hung out with us um, yes, because yeah, you, yeah. you, uh, you come to an undisclosed, you, you go to an undisclosed location in the U S 
and uh, you have come down here to Nashville to visit us. Yes, and one of the few besides the people that live here in Nashville uh-huh. that we've. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't mind saying where I am. Really, I've thank, thanks for the. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm in Springfield. Yeah, uh, in Illinois, in the Midwest, the Prairie State, I think they call it. Yeah, yeah I'm, getting, I'm getting a nod of approval, so I think I got that right. <laughs> Land of Lincoln. Land of Lincoln, yeah. yeah. Home of the Simpsons, too? I don't know. Yeah, I don't funny. know. Is that, is that the home of the Simpsons, <laughs> or is that more? Yeah. I think we've got a few Springfields, haven't we, in the States? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you have Springfields in, in, in uh, the UK? Is there, no, is there none, a Springfield? No, not not what I've ever seen. I might be wrong, but I've never. My geography of UK is pretty good, and I've never said I've never heard of one. That that must be that must be a uh, it must be just a United States thing. It is, yeah, yeah. The, 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 those those silly Yanks. I've <laughs> also find it cool that you actually uh, saw Joy Division live. That's one of my. Well, biggest, actually, uh, things. yeah, I should come clean. I don't know if I actually said I saw them. They were supporting the Buzzcocks in mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. 1979 at Guildford Civic. And I think I was probably still in the White Horse drinking when they were on. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll just I'll just imagine that you did then. Uh, yeah. You're yeah, probably like, what's this crappy opening stuff. band? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was. I quite liked um, New Order as well because that, that mm-hmm. grew out that Peter Hook, wasn't it? I mm-hmm. loved his bass playing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, he's got a new band called Peter Hook and the Light. They Has go, he? yeah, they go around and they play like New Order songs and Joy Division songs. And uh, I actually got to see them a couple of years ago in Athens, Georgia. They were playing uh, both. Joy Division albums because there's only really two. Yeah, it's kind of hard to come back. It's kind of hard yeah. when the, you know your lead singer kills himself. But that's the, right. uh, <laughs> but yeah. then he plays like a set of New Order, and he's coming back. And I told Rob that like if he um, he needs to st- sneak me in in the equipment <laughs> if he uh, ends up working that yeah. show. That's it. Well, <laughs> I, the thing I remember about Joy Division was uh, we had this really really cheesy popular mainstream DJ called Tony Blackburn and there's lots there were lots like him there still are and he obviously didn't know who they were and they were doing the chart countdown of the week that they had one of their I forget transmission or something uh, I yeah. can't remember yeah. uh, it, I might have got that wrong but it was one of the Joy Division tracks and they he basically introduced them as Joy Davidson <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the uncoolest DJ ever. <laughs> yeah. But you know where Joy Division come from? Manchester. No, sorry, sorry, I should rephrase that. Where the actual name came oh, from. Oh yeah, I do. It was um the the it was a Nazi brothel right. in the concentration yeah. camps. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not good. Yeah. It's like that. a book, I think that I can't remember the name of the book, but it it comes from a book about I don't even remember what the what concentration camp it was, but that's where they got it from. Ravensbrück or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, they had they had some problems early on because, like, I think um, Bernard Sumner, he said something about, like, did you all forget Rudolf Hess and one of the, you know, they, they do, like, the Nazi salutes and stuff. And, of course, oh, yeah. when they, you know, Ian Curtis killed himself, they became New Order, which, you know, has some very yes, Nazi yeah. connotations to it exactly. as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they were part of a whole sort of Manchester scene at the time, and uh, that sort of 
from that it went into the um oh what was it the sort of early 90s yeah what did they call it like they had the happy mondays and uh-huh. it, it wasn't my cup of tea at all <laughs> happy yeah Mo- I, uh, stone roses were good I yeah the i like roses. the stone roses they're, that's yeah. good stuff yeah they're good band i do really like the manchester thing funny thing is like when mark came here and i was showing him and uh janice around nashville it was like we were talking about like so I was just like you know geeking out about all these British bands because I I love British bands mm. and and Mark was like the opposite he's from Britain and he loves all the American bands so it's like, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I do I do but yeah, well I you know the Avett brothers and the Felice brothers I don't know uh-huh. they've all got brothers in the title name um, <laughs> the ones I like, the ones I like have um, yeah and I, I sort of grew up on the you know the eagles and that sort of stuff as well right you know? right right uh, tom petty you know another one i love tom petty yeah who just passed uh, away recently yeah that's sad yeah so yeah i mean i did i did like the british bands i mean i, I used to i like the irish i mean i love the undertones they were irish mm-hmm. um the jam they came from my hometown they, oh they, really yeah i knew two of them there's only two you know i knew two-thirds of them huh <laughs> Two thirds of them and an uncle. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, 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 what town? Uh, Woking. Okay. That's it. That's sort of south of London. Okay. And, um, they, yeah, they would, I was working as a builder's merchant and they would regularly come in and buy their ironmongery from me, you know. So, um, the, the bass player, Bruce Foxton. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, the drummer, he was, um, I knew the drummer. My, I think my, my, my brother still knows him. Um, Bruce Foxton, anyway, and uh, Paul Weller. I mean, I never saw him. He was the main one, as you know, and I never saw him ever. Only yeah. in, on stage. And I'm not, I'm not that big a fan, really. But he, he is massive in England. I mean, and Europe, massive. But I, from from talking to people here, um, they're not really known. I don't think Paul Weller's that well known in America. Yeah, I don't think that they're, they're as well known. Um, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, like, of course, like the clash sex pistols, yeah. those, those bands from like the kind of the first wave of punk rock in the UK, but are even the buzzcocks really, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I loved the early clash. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. It's just that whole, um, I don't know. It's just the feel of it was wonderful. I, I mean, the, the second album, the give them enough rope, which was the one, uh, Sandy Perlman did, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that, they they didn't like it at all, and a lot of the fans don't like it. But I always, <laughs> I enjoy. I oh, prefer that's, that's, that. One. That's one that I really like, actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah, they kind of has like this, uh, you know, like London Calling and uh, and San Easter kind of like really long mm. albums to get through. Yeah, really. <laughs> triple album wasn't it, San Easter? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was really long. But I want I want to talk some folklore with you. Because okay. this is uh, this is the subject of your forthcoming, I guess now books. Yes, which you decided yeah. to um, to write like a kind of like a book about kind of like the folklore and some of the things around where you live now, which is Cornwall. Yes, um, kind of on the edge of of Britain. Yes, and uh, you know we were. But what uh, what kind of got you into okay. to writing this and collecting some of these stories? Well, I think just just briefly, I'll try and explain to because I've from my understanding of being in America, pe- people will often say to me, "Oh, wh- where are you from?" And if I say to them Cornwall, 
they go, where, where, where? They, they sort of know London and <laughs> that's about it. Sure. Um, so I have to try and explain. And it's um, Cornwall was once its own country. I mean, we're looking at like four or 500 years ago. It was, if you look at old maps, Cornwall was its own country. It wasn't England. Uh, there's still people in Cornwall today who are very, very staunchly sort of nationalists, if you want to put it like that, who don't see themselves as English at all. Um, they are in the very far west of England. Um, they're, they're like, they're, it's a tiny, it's like... Um, 150 miles, I think, from top to bottom. And you're never more than sort of 15 miles from the coast, which has a big bearing on the, the folklore, you know, and history. Um, high ground down the middle, especially down the end, you've got granite moor tops. It's very, very uh, distinctive to Cornwall. And you've got, obviously, you've got fishing villages and towns all the way down the north coast and all the way along the south coast. The north coast is wilder. And... There is a definite feeling. Uh, most people who've travelled from England down into Cornwall will tell you that there is a definite different feeling. As soon as there's, there's a river Tamar divides England from Cornwall, or technically they would say Devon, which is a county from Cornwall. And it's almost an island because it's split by this river Tamar and there's only like a couple of miles at the north end of it where there's land and not the river. If, if if the river carried on, which it doesn't, it would be an island. And there's a different feel to the place when you get there. It's 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 got this certain magic to it, which uh, most I don't know most people would recognise it. I think anyone with any feeling would recognise that. And it's got a different history. You know, it's got a Celtic history. It's it's got like Brittany in the northwest of France. It's connected to that uh, because they're, they're like cousins. Then you've got the Irish, obviously, across the sea, and you've got the Scottish further up north. Uh, the Welsh, of course, have just bypassed the Welsh. So they're all part of the family. They're all part of that sort of Celtic family, really. Um, and they have been recognised as a nation and uh, by the EU as a separate distinctive um, – I'm not quite sure if, I said, if it's as a nation um, – but they, are, they have finally been recognised by the EU about a year or two ago, I think. Mm. Um, as having a distinctive history, you know. And there, there were a couple of uprisings sort of 500 years ago. But it's sort of been absorbed by England and it's been anglicised, but you've still got a very distinct Cornish feeling down there, especially down the far end. And, you know, all this folklore is, you know, you've got all around the far end, you've got these lovely little fishing villages and you've got these high moor tops. And you've got all these legends of like giants and spriggans and piskies and what's a spriggan well that, that's a good question because i haven't actually studied those at all yet that's a great or question, for that mate. matter a pisky um, <laughs> oh but yeah they're, they're sort of like little creatures they're like it's all like fairy folklore stuff it's like right. they they um that isn't something I've particularly studied yet, but they're to do – there's like knockers, for example. You get knockers in the mines, and the miners used to hear these little knockings going on as if somebody else was working the seam. You know, the tin mines. They had tin mines in Cornwall until very recently. And the, the miners would leave little offerings to these uh, pis knockers and piskies and spriggans, all the rest of them. Um they had a lot of respect for them. They they really believed they were there. 
And the stories go back literally hundreds of years. And the fishermen were the same. The fishermen would leave um, part of their catch uh, to this uh, sort of god. They called it Bucca. Uh, or it could be Buka, but Buka or Buka, Buka. Um, so it's sort of rampant amongst the sort of Cornish folk memory. You know, they, all of these things are still there, really. But, um, you know, whether they still leave offerings is probably open to I don't think they do. Um, but e- everything about Cornwall is different, really. It's a very different place. It's, it's not England. <laughs> and yeah. I, and I'm, I'm sort of got a foot in both camps because I was born in England. Sure. But, but I have Cornish relations. How, how you – the Cornish have different surnames. So you've got – I mean, obviously not all of them. But if there's a, there's a rhyme that says, by tray, pole, and pen – I've probably forgotten a bit of it – you shall know the Cornish men – which means if a surname begins with T-R-E or P-O-L, or, you know, there's various different Cornish names. Well, I'm sort of related to Trevorrows, which is one of the biggest names. Um, so, yeah, I've got, I've got sort of foot in both camps, really. So, But I, I feel at home in the far west of Cornwall, which is, I have a house, I have a little, well, a little flat down there. And just a little bit of, just a little bit of history here. Like, um, you know, you have Rome and Britain, and that's primarily the Celts. They kind of maintain mm. their identity all through the Roman era, and mm. then the Anglo-Saxons come in, which are the the um, I guess ancestors of the English, and they yeah. push the Celts into these areas like okay. Wales and Cornwall. Right, and I've, I've, then Brittany uh, as well is the, uh, yeah. another settlement of the okay. Celts. Can I? I just say because yeah. that. That is the opinion that I had until I started looking into it. And okay. that, is, that is what I was taught at school, I think, really. And that's what I picked up over the years. I agree totally. That's what I thought. I've actually – I've got contact here in Springfield with a uh, couple of guys. <laughs> One, one's a professor. Uh, they're, they're good friends of Janice's. And one is as good as a professor, but he's not – he hasn't gone through the establishment system. They're both highly, highly intelligent, and they study. They sort of backtrack in their DNA, and they've got me involved in this as well. I've I've done mine, and they study flows of population down through the ages. And say, like the National Geographic, for example, if you study what the National Geographic tell you, it's not quite as clear cut as what you say, or Mm. I would have thought as well. It's there were there were multiple waves of immigration from various places. They they never really stopped, you know, and it wasn't necessarily like we we think of it in a in a strict timeline, and I don't think that's how it really happened. And and yeah, I. I, I learned that, you know, if, if you think about it logically, the southeast of England has all the best farmland. And that's where they, you know, the best place to be if you're, you know, farmers. Um, and I always imagined that these people were pushed out by these warlike Germanic tribes, you know, the Saxons. And they were pushed into Wales and, there, and down into Cornwall as well. And I think there was that, that was going on probably. But it's not the whole story, I don't think. Um, I, I mean, like with the Romans, for example, from what I can gather, the Romans sort of pretty much left Cornwall alone. So they sort of went down as far as that River Tamar. And they basically, Cornwall was a very prosperous place. It was like the very first sort of industrial area, probably in the world. Um, 
you know, it's just a tiny area, and yet it has a, such amazing history. I, I think you could you could lay claim to it being like the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, really. really? I mean, the north, yeah, the north of England claims it, but I always feel it's like they took the baton from the Cornish. That's how I feel because the Cornish had already sort of developed steam, and they they had a steam engine working before the Rainhill Trials up in Liverpool, which is the north of England. You know, like I don't know, I can't quite remember the years, how many years between. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's an old folk song in Camborne, which is like the industrial heartland of Cornwall, which always was. And it's called Going Up Camborne Hill, Coming Down. And it's about that steam engine, uh, which they produced. It was a guy called Richard Trevivik. And he was like one of the best engineers the world's ever seen you know but the likes of stevenson who developed steam they sort of they sort of took the baton and carried it on they they produced the the goods i suppose (laughs) in a better way um but yeah i mean it's it's a very overlooked area of the world in terms of development it's I, i would say it's a cradle of it all really and and it was wealthy if you go back to the time of um say say there's, there's a lot of legends down in Cornwall that Jesus actually, I mean, whether you believe he existed or not, the legends are that he visited Cornwall sort of two or three times, maybe more, uh, with his uncle, who was a tin dealer. And they used to land at a place um, which, well, St. Michael's Mount, which is like an offshore, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's like a huge, um, it's a castle on a rocky outcrop, which just sits in the bay, uh, right down the far west of Gormor. And in the old days, they called it Ictis. And that's... You know, there's lots of Jewish connections around there, like the names of the streets and everything. Really? Uh, yeah. So I'm, you know, although you don't see, you know, you don't see Orthodox Jews walking around or anything, but there's this connection with names like Marazion, for example, the name of a place just by the mountain there, uh, which is, I think, I probably get this wrong. I can't remember what the Mara is now, but Zion is obviously self-explanatory. Right. Um, so there are all these connections and, you know, the, the deeper, I mean, I found as I've been writing this book, I mean, I sort of had a, a rough knowledge of what was, what happened because I'd, I'd been brought up with, you know, Cornish history and, you know, it's in the family going back generations and I found, I find the more you dig into it, the less you know, <laughs> And uh, I've been reading up on all these folklore books and reading about the magic and the witchcraft and all these sort of things. And, you know, the mermaids was the one that sort of pulled me into it. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about that. Let's yeah, talk about, okay. uh, one question before we get to the mermaids. You, you were hmm. telling me that uh, we, were, we were talking on Skype and you were telling me about some of the uh, like there's a more of a of a Catholic influence in Cornwall that they kind of resisted the, uh, the yeah. Reformation. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, I wouldn't say there isn't now, but I, th- I think that's the way I, I, I read into it because I think there was there were two rebellions. Um, 1497 was definitely one, and there was one within sort of 50 years of that, I think. And it was, well, the English establishment, when they talk about it, they would say, you know, if you read the history books, it will tell you it was a prayer book rebellion because the, the I think it's to do with Henry VIII, 
and he was trying to change everything to like the English service and get rid of all the Latin and right. all that stuff. Um, and the Cornish were very reluctant to let go of it because they were sort of quite happy with, with that at the time. Um, but obviously there was a lot more going on than just a prayer book rebellion. You know, it was, um, they, they were Cornish were sort of treated like the Irish really. I, I think they actually had their own potato famine and everything, you know, it was, um, very, it's a very similar sort of landscape and, you know, they, they are living by fishing and mining and farming, you know, um, sorry, I'm going, I'm going off the subject, aren't I? Um, <laughs> it's okay. So, so yeah. So where were we? I'm just being distracted. Well, we were talking about, we we're going to talk about the mermaids. Um, yeah, I, I guess living on the it being kind of like a thin piece of land yeah. that you you know, by the sea, you're going to have those kind of uh, those kind of legends. And this yeah. is some interesting stuff that you found about the about the the mermaid legends there. Yeah, I mean, when I when I sent you that piece to have a look at, I, it was sort of early days, and I sort of I sort of regretted it afterwards because <laughs> I hadn't actually even touched, scratched the surface of it. I've I've learned so much more since, really. But I, in in studying it from from that position of like knowing very little about it, it's it's really been amazing. It's like been a, a wonderful journey, really, to find out where it takes you. I mean, I've been back to the Homer's Odyssey and all this sort of stuff and the legends and realized that these things were current, you know, the, these things were, whatever they were, they were all over the world, you know. I mean, I, I, I was specializing in looking at sort of northern, the northern hemisphere, you know. Um, and there are certain places like, say, the Scottish coast, for example, where these things were regularly sighted. And you had, there's names, you know, these things were known in, you know, off the coast of Germany, uh, Denmark. They, they've all got their own names for it. You know, Germans, I think they called them Meerfrau, I think they called them. Um, you, they, they were literally everywhere. Now, obviously, the cynic is going to say, well, they're seals or they're, I, I haven't got this, I never remember how to pronounce it, but it's, uh, Dugong or something. Yeah. I haven't got got this funny. There's a couple of other things. There's a couple of things that they regularly think, oh, this is probably what it was. Yeah, I think the Dugong is that thing with the big horn on it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, we have manatees here in the States. Yeah, manatees. That's the one I couldn't think of. Yeah, manatees. Well, when you look at the pictures of what they look like, they're they're nothing like the descriptions that people were given. Yeah. there's there's just no comparison. I, mean, I was looking at all that. Um, plus, you have sort of people who would, you know, be you could say they're reliable witnesses in the say say for example Christopher Columbus. He actually was quite happy to put it in his ship's log that he saw one. And so this is like the equivalent of a modern sort of airline captain saying, "Oh, I saw a UFO." You know, he was quite happy to say that. Mm-hmm. And you had sort of, you know, sailors, um, fishermen, people who lived on the coast who knew the differences between a seal and a mermaid, you know. They they were telling us what they saw. Um, so it's uh, – my, my feeling after having sort of studied it in this in, – in a short time really, but I've sort of gone deep into it, is that the sort of – uh, okay, I should explain. There's a place, there's one particular mermaid story that 
I sort of got into it originally back when I was a kid. There's a there's a tiny village in the far west of Cornwall called uh, Zena, and there's a church called St. Sonara. And in that church, there's a chancel seat, like a, an oak bench seat. It's something like, without doing the maths, it's something like 500 years old now. And there's a carving, a beautiful carving of a mermaid. And this is a particular type of, there's a whole story attached to it, which, uh, which I'm going to put in the book. But there's a particular type of mermaid, because when you read all the different descriptions, there are so many different descriptions of what a mermaid actually looked like. You know, so this mermaid, the Zena mermaid, was what I call the Zena mermaid archetype, because it's like that pretty sort of, um, you know, it was a, a the fish classic romantic. Waist, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and they, they're, they're normally big-breasted. They've got lovely long, blonde, yellowy hair. You know, and they're always dripping wet, of course. You know, <laughs> so um, you've got that side. But then you've also got these stories of these really sort of pretty much um, evil-type entities that are basically cursing anybody that sees them and causing all sorts of grief for people as shipwrecking sailors. And mm. so you've got that other side of the coin. And as I say, it said earlier, it all goes back to the legends. You can sort of trace it all back to the legends. So, yeah, it's, they, the idea came from somewhere. So I, I feel these things – well, we, we had a conversation here about this uh, just a few days ago. And we were talking about that Sitchin guy that did all the – was it Alexander Sitchin, was it? Yeah, Zachariah Sitchin. Zach, yeah. Zachariah, sorry, Zachariah. And – you know, he had these ideas that there's like as an NT or something, and, and they created humans and so on. You know, there's all that whole saga of uh, which I'm not sure about really. I, I don't know, but we were wondering whether perhaps it was some sort of hybrid that was created uh, in you know centuries and centuries ago by some other race that came here. <laughs> we don't know. And maybe they were around, and maybe they eventually. I, I because of the sightings, the sightings sort of. The last sighting I know of was about 1947, in off the coast of Scotland, where a guy was walking on the cliffs, and he basically it was at Sandside, I think a place called Sandside on the north coast, and he claimed to have seen this mermaid. Uh, you've also got. For pretty well-known authors, I can't think of a name on top of my head, who've you know serious people who claim they saw mermaids in Cornwall in one case. Um, throughout the 1800s, you know, like the 1850s, 1860s, there were several big cases which made the newspapers both in Cornwall and in Scotland. Very similar cases where multiple witnesses on over a period of days saw what they were and these were coastal people who knew what they were looking at claimed that they saw these mermaids just basking on the rocks you know just playing around with their young and they, they said they were just like men and women from the waist up that they were they had you know fins and silvery and <laughs> and they weren't people dressed up you know they, these were they said they were real so i'm wondering whether they were some sort of it's some sort of species that basically eventually died out, you know, because you don't get the sightings now. But uh, if we just go back to the mistaken identity thing with these um, manatees and so on, those, I, I can't remember which one it was, but they're only, they're generally found in the Southern Hemisphere in warmer waters. But most right. of these sightings were in the Northern Hemisphere. 
Right. We have so, you know, we have the manatee in Florida. I think that they that they're mostly a North and South America thing. I don't think they're in the Eastern Hemisphere at all. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've 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 also, I, as I, I mentioned, sort of touched on earlier. I've got these two very very good friends here. I've made with, via Janice, who are one one's a professor of science of some description, and he's he's retired now, and another another friend who's also ex, extremely bright, and they're fascinated by all the folklore, and. We're sort of working together on sort of up to our own strengths um, to produce this work on sort of how the magic and the, myth, and the myths and the legends and all this sort of stuff, how it went across the ocean with the immigration into the States, you know, with the English and the Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish and so on, um, and how they've taken all this stuff with them. So part of that we'll be looking into, and I haven't even started yet, but we'll be looking at how that went over to, say, like your um, eastern coast fishing settlements, for example, to see, you know, whether you have similar histories, which I'm guessing from what you're saying you do. So, you know, that's quite interesting. So I've, I've got them sort of <laughs> working on that already. They're sort of looking into all that. Their, their skills are in research in this stuff and they're very very bright people um whereas mine tends to be more in putting the story together in a sort of like a readable form um so so we're going to try and work together on that um sorry i'm sort of going off tangent there <laughs> well well something that, that was an interesting theme to me um and i i i didn't know this until you sent this email to me mm. um and there's parallels to the fairy lore with this yes yeah but men being kidnapped by the mermaids yes yeah exactly. let's talk I, about I, that yeah i mean it seems to uh, i mean i when i was reading all this stuff i kept sort of thinking about the 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 ufo abduction type scenarios and also the um i'm trying to think right. of his name David Pilides, yeah. who's studying all these missing people, and he found patterns with, but it was young men that were going missing. Well, that rung alarm bells because I thought, well, the, the Zena Mermaid, for example, that was about a guy called Matthew Truella. Um, and, and this, I think, this dates back sort of 500 years or so. And the story goes that this. Um, this mermaid who was like some sort of changeling who was able to sort of change her lower half to legs <laughs> when uh, she was on dry land. Like the movie Very Splash, right? An aerial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, she, yeah. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but it's like in a, in a way you think, yeah, that's, the cynic in me says, yeah, that's convenient, you know. But um, she was supposedly, she was lured by this beautiful singing voice, which he, he was a chorister in this church. And she would go to the church, supposedly, and she would listen to him singing on a, on a Sunday evening in his in the evensong service. And she would, she turned up on regular Sundays and eventually they were last seen together outside the church heading off towards the cliffs. And you're only talking about like a five-minute walk. It's a beautiful, wild coastline. And supposedly they were never – he was never seen again, you know, and she was never seen again. Um, and it was a bit more to the story than that. But it's as you say, it's these, these um, men that go missing. Now, you also have these other cases of 
there was a case of a guy called Luti. He was on the, I think he was on the South Cornish coast. And he was a farmer. And of an evening, he would like to walk on the beach. Again, he was very close to the beaches. He would walk on the beach and he would be looking for sort of um, flots and wreckage coming in because that's part of the culture as well. Even to this day, anything that gets washed up on the beaches in Cornwall, <laughs> the locals turn out en masse. I mean, I'm, seriously, I mean, just, just in, my, in my time, I've been there for nearly 20 years now, in my time, a, a container ship went down off the north coast and all the containers, for, you know, these big containers were washed up on our beaches. There was amazing amounts of timber. There were motorbikes, brand new big motorbikes inside crates washed up on the beach. All of that stuff was cleared and disappeared by the morning. <laughs> by the time. And this, this goes back into history. This, you know, you, I don't know if you've heard of Poldark. Paul no. Poldark was, a, was a, a Winston Graham. He was a, a, a novelist. He wrote this, uh, this saga, this Poldark saga. It's very big in Britain. It, it's having its second um, TV run now. It's like they've made it twice, you know, in the 70s. And also just recently it's on now. So it's the biggest show on telly in Britain. And the same thing happens in that saga. That was like the 1750s or somewhere around in 1800s. And the same thing happens, you know, shipwrecks all the stuff gets washed in the locals just absolutely strip the stuff bare and it's all it's all the whole community in you know joins in you know vicars uh, publicans police everyone we're not police maybe but <laughs> and it's just part of the culture and it, it's accepted as part of the it's just historic you know it's a tradition it's it's not looked upon as thieving you know, the government the english government try and stamp down on it but it's like no, it's it's for rights. <laughs> it's it's theirs as far as they're concerned. You know, it's washed up on the beaches. It must be theirs. So there's definitely a benefit to living there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was too slow to get there, but I heard <laughs> one of my a lot of new. Um, you'll find that in the months after these shipwrecks, especially when there's timber, because it's a lot of it is timber being transported off around the world or coming in. That um, you'll find a lot of new sheds and garages being built in the. In the extensions going up because people have hoarded it away and they're using it you know so anyway i've sort of gone off tangent yet again haven't i so um a lot of this is sort of analogous to um going back to like homer's odyssey and sirens especially coming to especially with the um the luring of of man and the 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 disappearances and that sort of thing Exactly. Yeah. Sorry for getting yeah, get me back on track. So I I feel with that. You also part of the mermaid legend is that they they will say to their man who they've lured with the sounds, as you say, like this weird, spooky, creepy singing that they supposedly did. They would part of the story would be they would run their comb. They had this mermaids had this comb, and they would run it through the sea three times. I think it was, and that would if the guy did that the mermaid would come back to him on the next tide, the next high tide. Well, again, if you look at that and you think about it, that could be just some sort of technology that they had, which gives out signals underwater in the same way that, you know, dolphins and porpoises and whales, they all use some sort of, I don't know, sonar, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. to communicate, don't they? So I feel that that's all connected. 
And there's something going on with these sounds generally, which I can't, you know, none of us can, I suppose. We can't quite put a finger on it. It's to do with frequencies. It's to do with sounds. And it's like a a weapon. Um, They're using these voices. Like, Like, I think it was... I think it was in Homer's Odyssey, wasn't it? They, they said um, voices like gilded lilies or something like that. And it's it's like uh, sound as weapons. And and if you take if you take that to the modern age, you could say we do that more and more. Um, say like the the Wacko Siege, for example, they used excessively loud rock music, didn't they? To um, get them out of the compound apart from setting fire to it and forget that bit but oh <laughs> uh, yeah 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 Waco yeah, well, yeah. but did, did they use sound um, ACDC or something I mean yeah I, I think they did I remember <laughs> when I remember when Noriega was in yeah, the, Noriega. Uh, the Vatican the Vatican embassy in, in Panama and they blasted like Van Halen at him for days yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's that the one I was out. trying to remember <laughs> uh, yeah exactly yeah yeah, they, they would have me on about a minute of ACDC, definitely. I'd be out surrendering. <laughs> you know, I, I quite like the guitars, but when the bloke starts screeching, I can't handle that. <laughs> Which one, Bon Scott or the other one? <laughs> oh, I think they're both pretty Either, good. Either, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, yeah, not my bag. It, it, there's interesting parallels to the fairy lore mm. uh, here. Okay, like, I mean, it's uh, the, the men being taken off to live yeah. with the mermaids and never coming back. And you see that in yes. fairy lore. And also this yeah. idea that you, you, what you wrote was in, it's see a common thing that crops up time. And again, is that a mermaid's tempting young men away from home to live with them and subsequently to raise hybrid families together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. You've got me there. Cause I didn't actually, that comes straight in this abduction. Yeah. yeah. This is a common theme that you see in fairy lore. Our good friend Joshua Cutchin, exactly, uh, he yeah. talks about yeah. this as well, and yeah. uh, it, it, and and he's I th- he's just finished a book about this very thing about how there's this this reproductive element in fairy lore and the Bigfoot abduction uh, yes, lore. Yeah, I mentioned that as and well, yeah. alien abduction lore. Yeah. And yeah. now we can add mermaids to this. We yeah. can, we can, because the, the deeper I got into it, the more I could see those parallels coming out. Well, and, and also the sound thing. I will just mention. I said, you know, about the Noriego thing, or you, you sort of mentioned it. You could also go back to like the Bible story of the sound being used as a weapon again. Yeah. Because you had the, the walls of Jericho. You had that right. story about sound being blasted, and it sort of somehow unsettled the masonry and so on. So I think there's something in all that as well um, some sort of technology um, yeah. and they're on that scale somewhere I don't know quite how that works but if, if we look at if we look at you know we've talked a lot about the co-creation theory I've heard you, you, you we, we've talked about that with Greg Bishop on the show yes and we, we've talked about all these things about how these different how these beings whatever they are appear to us for, yes. so for someone that is maybe inland England or inland Ireland, that they're going to appear as fairies. But for someone right. in Cornwall, people that live on the coast, it could be a different cultural context. Uh, yes. And they're right, showing yeah. up as, as a mermaid. Yes. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, it fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was going to say, kind of like the origin story. I don't really buy into the Zachariah Sitchin stuff. No. But it is interesting to me, uh, one of the other books about, and we've had Laird Scranton on talking about this, uh, about the, you know, the Dogon and their kind of, um, you know, the serious A and serious yes. B, you know, that, yeah. that knowledge that, that they think filtered down from the Egyptians. Well, the Dogon say that where they got it was from this fish-like creature called the Namo. Yeah. Oh right, which I think is right. analogous to like the Oannes, I think the Greek god that lived in the sea, and of course you got you got Poseidon as well. Yes, but yeah. th- this whole you, you, there's there's this whole aspect of it going on there too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, another thing and you've I was, also got yeah. So you also got the um, the underwater what do they call them the the USOs USOs right yeah. that are seen which is some, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> coming coming out of the water. Yeah. Uh, now that that I will just mention while you while we talk about that. Uh, in getting collecting stories from people around Cornwall, because most all well all of this stuff comes out of Cornwall. One of my colleagues who's he's actually been at the Truro um UFO conference this weekend, actually. I missed it because I was in America. Um he he is pro- he's promised to introduce me to this guy, a friend of his, I've never met him. Uh he lives down in the far west of Cornwall. Now, he claims to have seen a, a triangular UFO just coming out of the bay, literally coming out of the bay, mm-hmm. and just just from, from like he saw the shape, he saw it come out of the water, and it was just gone very, very quickly to like a tiny speck. And it's not the first time this has happened. So there's, there's lots of this goes on around Cornwall because we are so close to the sea, so obviously more people are going to see that. I've I've had multiple people come forward for the book to say they've seen very similar things. Um, there's there's also just just near Bude where I I live part of the time. I've got as I say, I live at both ends of Cornwall at different times, and I'm in America a lot as well. So I've got like three homes really. <laughs> um, there's there's a place very near where I live in in the north of Cornwall. Which is a GCHQ, which is um, I'm not sure quite what it stands for. It, it's an American CIA-based. Um, it, it's like the British and American intelligence services. The main place is in um, I think it's Cambridge, which is sort of north of London, or it could be Oxford. It's one of those two. And the other place is in Bude, and it's literally just down the road from me. And one of my colleagues, who, who I've actually done a podcast with once before, he's actually taken random pictures over this. Um, it's like an early warning type place, you know. And he's taken random photographs of that place. And when he's looked at the photographs, there's craft over it, which he didn't see when he was taking it. And he's had multiple experiences. So it's uh, I should I should also say his neighbour. And I've got to be very careful what I say because the guy cannot go public. His neighbour actually works at a place <laughs> and he's had conversations with him. And the guy has basically come out and said, yes, we do know about them. We do track them. We're fully aware of them. So it's, you know, that's quite interesting for anyone who's into these UFOs. So there's definite confirmation. It's just obviously they can't go public. But um, and he, this guy had actually seen them for himself, and he he is one of the 
well, locally we call them the spies because they work at the spy station. <laughs> uh, but he's just like a, a computer geek type guy, you know. Um, so, you know, Cornwall is is a fascinating place for all of this stuff, really. Sorry, I've uh, stopped talking now. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I found interesting um, reading through the email, thanks for sending that up, by the way, um, was the fact that you kind of, you, you relay the fact that a lot of these settings are, um, they're from, you know, you know fishermen, people that spend their lives on the coast and in the sea and that know the natural wildlife and that know what they're looking at, know what they're seeing. And that, that's very analogous to uh, like the whole Bigfoot thing. You get a lot of hunters Yes, or people that have spent their entire lives out in the woods. They know what a bear looks like. You know, they know what yeah. all this other stuff looks. Like. And they're seeing, you know, they're seeing these creatures that just do not belong there. And yes. describing them in detail, and to, to shrug it off and say, "Oh, it's a seal, or it's a, a manatee, or this or that," is mm. kind of silly. It, yeah, I, it's for, la- lazy as well, isn't it? It's lazy. Exactly. It's, for uh, me, it's yeah. way easier to believe that they just totally made it up than that they're seeing something that they couldn't identify. Yeah. What's what's the name? Of, I'm trying trying to think of it. There's a name. Um, oh, there's a there's a oh god, a process where. Some, so yeah, razor. Somebody's razor. Occam's, Occam's razor. Occam, yeah. Occam's razor. It's like if they. To, to me, it's like if they say they saw a mermaid, they saw a mermaid. Right. <laughs> they didn't see. They didn't see a manatee. They saw a mermaid. You know. But if you can trust them as you know reliable witnesses, which yes, as you say, you know, most of the time they are familiar with that stuff. They've grown up with it. Mm-hmm. You know, if they live on the coast, they know what that stuff is. They know what a seal is. I mean, I, I, I'm not even a fisherman, but I, I've been out on a boat a few times and there is a, you know, I've been followed by seals and it's a beautiful thing to see. I've been surfing. I mean, that's another thing. I used to surf a lot for, for two or three years and I've seen, I've seen seals I know what seals look like. And did you read the piece I put about the the Scottish guy? I think it was who who claimed he saw these mermaids sort of just basking at sea. This is a um, when was that? The eighteen sixties or something? I think. It yeah, was. when they were laying on the shore. Yeah, and he said they were all just sort of dotted around, and um, you know they're just just out there relaxing, sort of thing, and. I don't know whether I put that in the piece I was writing because I'm still sort of working on it, really. But it, it crossed my mind because, as I say, I used to do a bit of surfing and sometimes I would just pull up in my vehicle on the beach, on on the cliffs. You know, there's certain places you can just pull up and look at the coast. It's an amazing, beautiful place. And I, c- I could just watch my mates surfing. Now, from a distance, they, they obviously, you know, we wear these wetsuits, these rubber wetsuits, so they're black. And we're obviously men and women. And a lot of the surfers, as you know, they've sort of got very long hair and it's wet and <laughs> and they're just sitting out at sea. Now, it crossed my mind because I think there's something to be said for sort of time slips, which fascinates me as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. It made, made me wonder whether maybe he had – because I know so many people who've had these sort of time slips. I mean, people like Anthony Peake. You know, he had one, I think, when he was in Cyprus. And, you know, so many people have had these experiences. I've had a few myself where maybe that's what's happened. Um, maybe you're, is, if it's to do with timelines and they're getting twisted, you know, um, crossing or whatever, however this thing works. Because, again, it comes back to frequency, I think. I think we're playing out on a frequency. 
and there's probably other frequencies around us, you know, just like different TV channels. And I think maybe sometimes we get glimpses of other realities, other timelines, whatever, earlier timelines. So maybe, just as just to throw it out there, maybe he saw surfers in the future and didn't see the boards. He just saw the guys sat there because you wouldn't see the boards. You'd just see the guys sitting there. I don't know if you ever watch surfers from a distance when they're just sitting, waiting for the next set to come in because that's, that's what they do. They sit there astride it and you don't really see the board unless you're close up. So you just see these guys sitting there and you might see five or six of them. Um, and what made me think that is I've got some old video of my friends surfing and that's what they look like. You know, and if you if you go back to the 1850s and 60s, people weren't surfing in Cornwall, not as far as I know. Anyway, um, it's it sort of started in the I think 1920s, 30s, sometime around that. It was it was brought in by an Aussie, um, and it started around Bude and Newquay. But in those days, you wouldn't have had that. You know, so they it's a bit like how do you name something that you've not seen before? You know this, these stories about the islanders who saw a boat coming in, and they couldn't they couldn't see it. There's some story they couldn't see it because they didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the Aztec it's or something. A, yeah, it's similar sort of thing to that, I think. Because they had no so reference, so they just kind of their br- yeah, brains glazed yeah. over it. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's just I'm not I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just you know I'm just throwing out ideas, but that's a possibility. Um, I mean, incidentally, the whole time slip thing is um, because whole part of this the whole Cornish thing is there's a heavy literary tradition down here. Down here, I'm saying it as if I'm there, I'm not because um, I feel I feel at home. There. You can tell by saying it. Um, you've got people like I don't know if you've heard of the novelist um, Jim, uh, Daphne du Maurier. She she wrote a, among others. She wrote Rebecca uh, Jamaica in. Frenchman's Creek, I think, was another one. And they're all mostly all based around Cornwall. And she claimed that quite frequently, I I think the house, I'm not sure, I think it was called Mandalay or something, she would be working, she was, was, as I say, she was a working novelist, she'd had some success. She would go out and stand around in her beautiful garden in the sunshine, quite near the coast, and she would just be relaxing to, to sort of come up with inspiration and so on. And she would sometimes look around at her house and she would see a sort of elderly lady looking out the window. And this happened quite frequently, but there was no one else in the house with her. She was on her own and she didn't recognise this lady. And then... It wasn't until she just assumed the house was haunted. And eventually, when she was, I don't know, when she was in her 60s or whatever, she was stood looking out of her own bedroom window when she sort of took a good look at herself. <laughs> and she realized that what she'd been seeing all those years was herself. Hmm. So, you know, it's like, oh, I'm trying to think. There's, there are lots of examples of this. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. Philip K. Dick. If you've ever read any Philip K. Dick stuff, oh, sort of listen to him. That's very it's, timely with the new Blade Runner movie yes. coming out. <laughs> oh right, yeah. He he's he was fascinating. I mean, he had an experience himself. I think when he was a young man, he was laying in bed with his wife in the middle of the night, just talking or so. I think it, I think he was woken up actually, and he said there was an old man stood at the bottom of a bed, a sort of unshaven, scruffy-looking old bloke stood at the bottom of the bed, just looking at him. 
and he thought it was a bit peculiar and eventually faded and again he probably just thought it's some sort of ghost and when he was older he found himself looking i, I might have got this, you know, i'd have to check this but i think he found himself stood at the end of that same bed looking back at the bed remembering his young days when he was with his wife i don't know quite what the situation was and he felt that he'd it sort of linked up that he felt that that's maybe what he saw mm. when he was younger so it there's there's this whole weirdness going on with timelines um and it that fascinates me i don't know what the answer is obviously it, it makes me think of that story about the two women i think this is in the early 20th century and they were in versailles um you know the well, yeah. the, the court of the french kings and then all of a sudden they start to kind of they kind of felt like they walked through some kind of fog or something yeah, and they saw all the like they they saw all these people that they thought were reenactors, like in yes. yeah. century clothing, and yeah. they were talking to them, and then they kind of walk back through this fog, and all of a sudden they're back in yeah. in, in present day for them. <clears throat> it really makes me think about what you know, what we think are ghosts could be some kind of bend in time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because definitely, really, definitely. like what some of the quantum theories that are out there that time isn't linear well yes it's just another dimension that we can't yeah. perceive because we're kind of locked into it right yes yeah yeah do, do you mean we're, we're locked into it because we're in a sort of three-dimensional <clears throat> body yeah yeah um, we're, 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 we're like passing spirit. we're passing through it as a dimension but if you were outside of it you'd see i mean it's all yeah. happened at once it's just there yeah yeah there's there's um i think it's uh, anthony peak again who he made this comparison whereby he said it's as if we're in a train carriage yeah and we're on it we're on a journey looking out the windows but he said there's this sort of daemon character and that's another thing but who sits on the roof and can see the see the station we've left and he can see the station we're going to but we can't because we're in the carriage or so you know is we can't see the end of the tracks either way right so yeah, similar thing really. Mm-hmm. Um, what about ghost stories from Cornwall? I know. Oh well, God, how long have you got? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've actually—I don't know how long you've got now, but I've—I've I've actually sort of stumbled into one. Um, Just—it's just weird the way it's happened, and I—I I, I don't know. You've probably not got long to sort of try and rattle this one out, but. I found myself in a situation where I had to, uh, I sort of, I've got this property down the far west in St. Ives, Penzance area. And, but I can't always be there because I rent the place out. So I need to be somewhere in the north. So I needed a little little place where I can just put a few of my favorite bits of furniture and my personal effects and sort of sleep there occasionally. Is that of the pirates fame, the pirates of Penzance? Yeah, the same Penzance, yeah. But but this this place I um, I try not to go off the subject, but it's like this is in the north part of Cornwall, so this is Bude we're talking about, and I needed somewhere to live there, and I needed just like a little apartment. So cut a long story short, a friend's son was was runs this place, and he he lets out various wings of his house, and I was he I went around there to have a look, and he said, okay, we've got two places you could have. Uh, one one sort of ready to move into and one isn't and he was a bit reluctant to let me have the other one but when I saw it it was in a, it was in a hell of a mess 
Um, but it had a nice balcony and it overlooks the cliffs. And it, I just loved the place, you know. So I thought that's fantastic. But it, it meant a lot more work, but I thought I can do that. So what I had, so I did. I decorated it, I ripped it all out. But it was full of old um, sort of surfing memorabilia, sort of uh, paraphernalia. You know, it's like terrible, really bad taste, um, driftwood shelving, <laughs> which wasn't even straight. And all this sort of surfing stuff just stuck on the wall. And it was, a, it, he may have been, this guy who lived there, which I'll get into, he may have been a good surfer, but he was the world's worst do-it-yourselfer. It was appalling, you know. So anyway, stripped it all out, cleaned it all up, put up new shelves and fitted it out. It's a lovely place now. But the guy showing me around, a friend, a friend's son, he said to, he was a bit reluctant to tell me who had been there before. But it turned out to be because um, it's like a shared house, so there's lots of there's lots of different wings and different people living there. And I gradually learned who had been there before me, and it'd been this surfer guy. And he was younger than me. He he died only about ten, roughly ten years ago, off the top of my head. Um, and he he died of cancer. He was a surfer. Now I was a surfer for a while. I wasn't a good one. I fell off more times than I stayed on. <laughs> But he was a good surfer, and he, like a lot of the Cornish surfers, he travelled the world. You know, that's what they do. That's their life. It's not just a hobby. It's like their life. So they spend all their time going to places like Indonesia and Mexico and so on, California, whatever. So he knew. He found out he was dying. There was nothing they could do for him. So he he went on their final uh, trip. I think it was Indonesia. And while he was there, his friends were a bit worried that he might die while they were away. So they said to him, what do, what do we do if you die, you know, because we want to, do we, do we take your body back or do we bury you here or whatever? And he said, well, just tie me to the surfboard and push me out, you know, push me out to sea because <laughs> that's the way they think, you know, they just like, love the sea. Um, but luckily he didn't die there and then, but he went back. But he did get taken, you know, very ill, just sort of snowballed and he got worse and worse. And he died in the apartment that I now live in. And this is what my friend's son was very reluctant to tell me at the time. Now, what he also didn't tell me, but I've gradually picked up from people who live there, is that this guy, now I'm going to call him Bill because he has actually got a, a very um, a very cool nickname, actually. Um, but I haven't actually got permission from his parents yet. It's a small town. Uh, to tell his story because it's very fresh in the memory you know it's like they have, they've only lost him a few years ago but a lot of these people who live in this house are very very reliable people very honest people i know them very well i knew a lot of them before i even moved in as i say small town you know everybody really and they nearly all of them claim that they've seen him at some time since he's died and in one case, one of the lads, this house is it's on the coast, very, very close to the coast, coast path and sort of 300, 400 foot cliffs. Um, there's a long lane, like a very dark rural lane. There's no lights or anything. And one of the guys was driving his, um, his van down this lane late one night. And he saw a guy on a bicycle and he thought, well, he looks familiar because they all knew this guy. And they realised it was him, but this was like, you know, a year or two after he died. And they passed him. They thought it was a bit peculiar. They thought that 
must be just somebody who looks like him. And when they looked in their mirror uh, after they passed him, there was nobody on the road. Mm-hmm. So they just, but they said he was like, he was definitely there and then he wasn't there and there was nowhere he could have gone. So that was one sighting. Then a lot of people have actually seen him around this house that I now live in. And I heard all these stories and I was a little bit um, cynical because I knew that they knew I loved all this stuff and I love writing about it and collecting the stories. So I'm think I was thinking, oh, they're just spinning a yarn, you know. But in talking to them, I, I've got a nose for finding out. You know, I can tell if someone's telling me, you know, if they give a feed of me BS because you sort of get used to that. Um, and I know, I know these people are honest and I could tell by the way they were telling me, one of the girls in particular was quite creeped out by it, but she did say to me, she said, don't worry. She said, well, she actually asked me, she said, have you seen him? We're calling Bill. She said, have you seen Bill yet? And I said, well, no, I haven't. And she said, well, don't worry about it. She said, um, he's a, he was a really nice guy and he, he'll just be checking you out to see if you're okay. Cause obviously you didn't know him. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, I was left there on because I, I could tell everybody was out. It was a Saturday night and they're mostly young people and they're all out in the town. And I was on my own in this house in, in as I say, it's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and only my part of the house was lit up where I was sitting there watching the telly or whatever I was doing. And I suddenly felt that there was somebody around hanging about outside my door. And I went to the door to see, thinking somebody had come home early. And there was nobody there, but it felt like somebody was there. And it was it was dark, you know, because every, every, all the other lights were out. And this was only this was only like sort of, I don't know, half 10, something like that, of a Saturday night. And I, I could just sense there was something there. I just knew there was something there. And I went back in, closed the door, sat down. And I just stayed, sat in there listening, and I could feel there was somebody there. I, I don't know how, but I just felt there was somebody there. And I had actually been chatting to Janice on the phone that night. And she'd said, we'd been talking about this. I, in fact, I rang her while I was experiencing this. And she said, well, just talk to him. <laughs> and I felt, well, I felt a bit silly doing that, even though I have seen stuff. Right. I'm still I'm still very cynical of it, even though I've seen stuff. I I try and kid myself. I haven't, even though I have, you know. And I think that's the right way to be. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I I just figure that you know maybe it's something I don't understand, and but I know I know I've seen stuff. You know, I have these things I call walk bys, where um, which I'll get to in a minute, but where I I feel that they know that I can see them. And I know that they will show themselves to me, and and it it won't be creepy at all. It'll just be like them saying hi, and then they I look round and they're not there. This happened to me a few times with various um, walkbys, as I as I call, you know, over a period of twenty five, thirty years. Yeah, I remember the the story about the guy in the in the hat that you saw in the crowd. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's been it's been quite a few. I mean, so I you know what I'm saying is I I am actually I'm not. I am cynical of my – well, I'm not cynical of my own because I know I've seen them. But when other people tell me stories, I'm a bit cynical of them, which is very unfair on my part. But I'm very cynical, like, yeah, really, you know, even though they probably have. <laughs> um, so she said to me, we'll just talk to him. So I thought, well, yeah, I will. So I just sat there and I, I felt a bit silly. But I just introduced – I said, oh, come in. I, I, I didn't call him Bill because that isn't really his name. Uh, so come in, Bill. 
you know, coming because I, I know you used to live here, and I just had this conversation with nobody. I felt a bit daft, but as the conversation went on, I was just telling him who I was, and I said, "Oh, I used to surf too," you know, and um, I felt that there was somebody listening, but there was nobody else in the house. Nobody flesh and blood, anyway. And eventually, after about ten minutes or so. That feeling dissipated. It just like it just changed. The atmosphere changed, and I knew that whatever it was that was there had gone. I mean, it may not have been Bill. <laughs> it could have been anybody. They're probably thinking, "Who is this Bill chap anyway?" You know, uh, who's he talking to? Um, but it changed, and and then I over the next few days, I was thinking about this. And I mentioned it to a few of the people in the house, and they said, "Oh, he's he's just come to check you out, and he probably he accepts that you're okay, and he knows you, and he's probably leave you alone." And I remembered the day that I was moving into this place. I was backwards and forwards, and you know what it's like when you move in. You're moving all your stuff, and you're <laughs> pre preoccupied with lifting stuff, and and I could. It's quite a busy house. There's people coming and going quite a lot because everyone else who lives there have their own friends, you know. So it's a very sociable place. People are coming and going all the time. And I remembered seeing this guy, and I remembered that I'd never seen him since, which was a bit strange, because most of these people, you get to know them, they come back and they come back and they come back. Um, And this particular guy I'd never seen again. And I was looking at – there are actually videos of this guy on YouTube – doing his thing doing his surfing and he was actually on the bbc at one point talking to a camera crew about his love of surfing and when i looked at this because i didn't know this guy in life we're not knowingly i might have brushed shoulders with him you know but i didn't know him sure and i i looked at him on the video and i thought he looks familiar now when the when this girl her name's vicky when Vicky told me, when she said to me, oh, have you met him yet? And at the time I said, well, no, I haven't. And she described him to me and she said, he's a cool guy, blah, blah, blah. She described the way he dressed. Now, that description fitted the guy that walked through the kitchen one day when I was humping stuff through there. I think I was actually getting a drink of water or something at the time. And I, I turned around and a bloke walked past me and he headed towards the central stairs and he went up the stairs. Now, he could have been anybody, and I'm not going to say, I wouldn't lay my life on that he was this guy, but I have a feeling that I'd been got again because this happens to me periodically. I had the the guy, you read the first book, um, Wyatt's Weird World. Mm -hmm. This happened to me at Surbiton Station in Surrey where I saw the tall, thin guy. And he walked past me and I looked around and there's no tall thin guy, he's gone. Nowhere for him to go. It happened with a, a, some sort of priest type vicar guy on a railway platform where I got off a train, been talking to him for 10 minutes. He wasn't on the train. <laughs> you know, there's more to it than that. But so, And I also saw a coal miner when I was living in the north of England who walked towards me. The thing they all have in common is they all catch your attention, like they're looking at you from a, you know, 20, 30 foot away. There was the guy that looked like, you know, I say looked like, yeah, I'm not saying it was. <laughs> I think it was the fashion of the day. The guy that looked like Henry VIII. Uh, the same thing happened. You know, I heard some footsteps. I saw the guy. He's he's looking at me. He's walking past me. And then he's gone. Never see him again. 
Now, Weird. you know, the cynic, the cynic out there will say, oh, there's something wrong with you, mate. You know, you want to get looked at. But I know what I've seen, and I don't care what they say because I know it's genuine. I know what I've seen. And when you have these experiences, it's like it's not necessarily scary. It just kind of is no. what it is. Yeah, it's yeah. not scary at all. It's just because they look – most of the time I, I do this – I think you mentioned it earlier or, or Robbie did. You think they're reenactors. That's your first impression. Oh, it's a reenactor. That's fun. You know, um, the guy that I saw at Pruda Castle – the Henry VIII lookalike, I'd say. My first thought was he's a reenactor because he was so beautifully done up and had the costume on. He had like pantaloons and he had tights on. He had funny shoes on, you know. He had a hat on. I, I could picture, you know, I can picture him now as I'm telling the story. He was like the typical artist's impression of Henry, Henry VIII. But that's not to say he was Henry VIII. That's, he could well have been, you know, it, it was probably the fashion of a day. Um, maybe a lot of people look like that, you know. Um, I don't know. But I, all I do know was that night, there was um, nobody else in that castle apart from my friend, his wife, their three children, my wife and her, our three children. Right. So and I, know, I know that for a fact because my friend Howard was the custodian. And he'd locked up like an hour or so earlier. And unless somebody had accidentally been locked up, which is what, you know, he that's his first impression when I went back to him. His his first immediate reaction is, oh my God, we've locked somebody in. Let's go and have a look go and find them. <laughs> yeah. You don't you think know? you don't think ghost. No, not that's at all. Not we what did, you we think. did no, and I didn't. I just thought there's some some reenactor who's somehow been locked in and he's Maybe he's, I don't know, why would he be there? It's just very strange. But then, as you remember, we I looked into the history of had the guy ever been there? And according to the history books, there's nothing to say he had, but he was connected to one of the girls that lived at that place for a while. Um, he, he married, I can't remember her name now, but he, he married her. But she, she was going out of one of the Percy's of Northumberland. Oh, they, they obviously didn't call it going out in those days, but um, courting. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, but it's all in the past anyway. But Mark, you, uh, in the time that we have left, you had said that, uh, you know, you've had some experiences here in the U.S. You said you had an experience in uh, Eureka Springs. Something happened to yeah. you. Can Can I ask Janice to tell you this story? Because... Oh, she's 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 saying no, 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 no. Um, I'd love her to tell you a story. Yes, please, Janice. Oh, she's oh, she's she's very nervous. We we about can it. hear her in the background. Can you? We heard. Jan- we, uh, do we just heard her? <laughs> yeah, Jan- Janice, come come and sit here, please, and just just don't be shy. <laughs> it's it's it, we're all friends here. <laughs> okay, I I just. So okay, so we're in. I'll, I'll set the ball rolling. So we're in Arkansas. We're in uh, Eureka Springs. What's the name of that hotel? Louder. Oh no, she, she's having a panic attack. Here. Hello, okay. hello, was, Janice. Was, say say hi to Adam. <laughs> it wasn't the Basin Park. It was opposite the Basin Park. What was it called? Oh. Uh, Okay, well, just what you just G yourself up, Janice, because I'm going to pass it over to you. But I'll just set the ball on her. Oh no, she's doing a runner now. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, 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 sorry, sorry about this. 
Okay, so so basically we we um, <laughs> we, we went on one of these. Um, the, the Basin Park Hotel was amazing. There was a guy called uh, something Bassinelli. He was a, he was a mm. Italian American, and he was doing ghost tours. And um, he did a ghost tour in the Basin Park, which is notorious for ghost sightings. And they had a connection with a mafia at one point with Al Capone's mob. Because I think it's some, I might be wrong, but some so halfway between uh, Chicago and St. Louis. Is that right? Well, no, I've probably got that wrong. Yeah. So, okay. So anyway, there was a mafia connection. And he, he gave us this wonderful tour, and that, that was fun in itself. And then when we finished, it was quite late at night, and we thought, oh, I was desperate for a drink. So we went looking for a bar, and that's another story. I'll tell you another time, but they, they wouldn't serve me without a license, without showing my passport and driver's license. It's like, hang on a minute. Surely I'm old enough. You know, I've got a lot of gray hair. Um, anyway, so they wouldn't serve me, which turned out to be a good thing. Um, so we went down to the hotel that we were staying at where there was a little bar in the corner and I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's uh, for anyone who's listening, who knows Eureka Springs, the grand central hotel, she's just remembered. So we go in there and I, I, to be honest, I wasn't happy because I'd just been turned away from a pub and I was thirsty (laughs) and I couldn't understand it because in England you would be served. If you're over 18, you get served. And I, I was annoyed. So this guy, we went into this place and there was the barman. It was a really cool guy. And we said, look, we're staying here. Can we have a drink, please? And there was also the owner of a hotel. There was a lovely American lady who was the girlfriend of Jerry Yester, who was in a band called uh, Loving Spoonful. And Jerry was there as well, but he wasn't very well. We met him in the morning. Um, we had this fantastic conversation and we got talking about ghosts and stuff. They told us, because Janice asked the question, have you got any ghosts here? Because it was a very old place and beautiful building. And we thought there's got to be some history here. And she's the lady who owned it, who was of Welsh descent, actually. She said, no, she said, we used to. She said, but we had a medium in or an exorcist. I can't remember what she said. And she said they were all cleared out. Now, we immediately just looked at each other and smirked because, you know, we we know that it doesn't – it's not as easy as that. You can't just get rid of stuff. I don't think so. <coughs> so I, I imagine them, you know, when you do this stuff, they're like standing in the corner just sort of trying not to laugh at us, you know. Like, oh, yeah, we'll be quiet. We'll pretend we've gone and then we come back when they've gone. That's how I imagine it. So – they basically said there's nothing here, you know, and, and the conversation changed to music. So anyway, eventually about one o'clock in the morning, we decided it's time to go to bed. In fact, we didn't decide for late. The owner was tired and she said, come on, let's let's have everybody break up. We've had it. You know, it's late. So two girls walked into this uh, Grand Central Hotel who were staying there. We didn't know, but they, they came in. They were a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is in America, a little bit drunk. And one of them sort of stumbled into this blackboard that had the menu on the, you know, and she knocked that fly in. And the, the lady who owned the place said, don't worry, girls, I'll pick it up. And we followed those two girls up the steps, which was like a spirally type staircase, the lovely old oak staircase, I think it was. We followed them up and they sat on the, um, what would you call it, the what do you call the area outside the hotel rooms? Like a sort of, I don't know, you know, like a communal area where they have chaise lounge or 
all that sort of thing, you know. So they sat down, and I noticed them sat down, and they were talking. And I just picked up a because I have just like they would with me. I don't always understand everything that the Americans are saying, just like they don't understand me. And I picked up a slight bit of their conversation, which was that they seemed to be sort of a bit nervous about going to see some guy who was in one of the rooms. And I don't know what the relationship was. I have no idea. That's the only thing I picked up. And that sort of lodged in my brain for some reason. So we get in our own room and we're laying on the bed. And as I say, by now it's about 20 past one in the morning. And we're right in front of our door. It's quite a small room. And we're just, we're very tired. We're drifting off to sleep. And I don't know how long we'd been asleep. I think, Oh, well, I thought I was, I was drifting off. Okay. We're, we're not 100% sure whether I, I think I was drifting off. But anyway, there's a, suddenly there was this amazing banging sound. Like somebody, it sounded to me like it was somebody next door, in the room next door. And just acting like a complete ass, you know, at one o'clock, 20 past one in the morning, whatever it was. Right, right. <laughs> just being really, really antisocial. And I just thought, well, that's unbelievable, you know. It's like, I want to sleep. And it just unbelievable noise, terrible noise. And then eventually it stopped. So we thought, okay, whatever it was, they've probably fallen into a drunken stupor and they're probably sleeping, hopefully. So then we tried to sleep again and then we got woken up. I don't think I even got back to sleep. I was trying to sleep and then it started again. So we're thinking, what is this? Is this water hammer coming through the pipes? Is this, and I, I don't know how to say this on a podcast, but... Was it a headboard being banged against a wall? <laughs> you know? That's a good appropriate uh, way to say it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that these sort of things went through my mind. And of course I was thinking about the two girls. And I'm thinking, well, maybe yeah, I don't want to go into that, but maybe they were wait maybe they'd met some guy earlier and they'd gone to see him, you know, who knows. Um, and I was trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. We both were. We were just laying there thinking, and it was getting louder and louder each time this happened. This happened four or five times through the night, and it didn't actually stop, and it was getting progressively louder. And we I should point out, we, as Janice just said, we were on the top floor, and it was a flat roof. We were on the top floor of this place. And... That to our left, to the left of the bed was like an ensuite, so it's like our own bathroom and so on. So we were quite a distance from the room to our left, and on the right, I think the room was, you know, it was just like a wall, and then there was a room. But we don't know who was in there. But at some point, we heard these girls talking again, and I'm guessing it was the girls, but I heard what sounded like two girls, and one of them said to the other one, I don't want to go downstairs on my own because I'm frightened. Now, we don't know why they wanted to go downstairs, whether whether they were hearing this noise as well and whether they wanted to go down to reception. There wouldn't have been anyone on reception. It was a small hotel. We had discussed, do we ring reception and complain? Well, not so much complain, but just tell them, can you come and sort this out because somebody's been obnoxious, you know? And... We decided, because we'd already met the lady who run the place, and she was like, um, I don't know what she would have been, 65-ish. And we'd, we liked her. You know, she was a lovely lady. We didn't want to disturb her rest. And, and it wasn't, to us, it wasn't a big deal. It's like, okay, these things happen. So we, we sort of put up with it, and it went on all night. 
So to if all I can say is this noise got progressively louder and louder and it wasn't it it didn't appear to be banging on the wall. It it wasn't banging on the ceiling above us. The noise seemed to be around us. I, I it's difficult to explain but it was like it was around us. Now by the time it was happening on the third or fourth time we expected to hear people angrily shouting and you know shouting out to shut the up you know because <laughs> that's the way i was beginning to feel myself and i didn't want to get well i actually said at the time I, I like i think janice probably said to me well should we go out and find out who's doing it and i said well let's wait and see if they start banging on our door and making it that makes it personal and at that point i will go out and have a go at whoever it is but I don't think it was coming from outside the room. That's the thing. I don't think it was. It was as if it was centralized to our room, mm. but it wasn't on the walls and it wasn't on the ceiling. And eventually, as I say, eventually it stopped. I think about, oh, I thought it was later than that. Well, anyway, I thought it was about half five or something, but Janice thinks it's about four. So we, we both obviously got some sleep. Now in the morning, I was ready way before Janice to go and get some breakfast. And it was Sunday morning. So she said to me, well, I'm not going to be ready for a while. Why don't you go down to reception and ask them whether they had any other, you know, did they have any complaints about the noise last night? So I went down there fully expecting to hear that, oh, yeah, there had been some drunks and this had happened and that had happened. And I mentioned it. There, there, was, um, there was a lady in the reception desk who I hadn't seen the day before. She was obviously just on duty on that day. And there was quite a few people in there with their dogs. It was like one of these sort of local meeting places. One of those guys was this guy from Loving Spoonful, which was really nice for me because I met him and he worked on he worked on a monkey's album, um, the one that they actually did do themselves, the first one they did more or less fully themselves, which was Headquarters. So I, it was nice to talk to him. He'd also produced Tom Waits. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, okay. right. Yeah. Now, I think, I think Robbie, you know about Mike Nesmith. He's, he's a hero of mine, actually. Yeah, I've worked with him a you, few times. You worked with him. Yeah, he, he, I, I love the guy. I love his stuff. I love his humor. And his philosophy of life is cool. Um, so I was fascinated to talk to him. But I asked him about all this, this noise. And the girl behind the desk said, what noise? And I thought she was just pulling my leg, you know. And I said, well, the noise last night, you know, the, the, the banging and crashing. And So anyway, everyone was drawn into this conversation, and including this Jerry Yester and, the, and his girlfriend who was in the bar with us the night before. And they were all at a loss to explain it because nobody else had complained. Not one person had complained. And we were... I think we were one of the last lots. She said the hotel had been fully sold out as well, which we didn't know till then. So every room was booked out. So nobody had complained about the noise, not one person. But this noise was unbelievable. I mean, I can't, I can't get it over to you how loud it was. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like somebody was working. And they were hammering nails into, you know, four by twos, <laughs> or, or as you call them in America, two by fours, because we have we do everything the other way around. Yeah. It, that's what it sounded like. It sounded like a building site, and everybody was hammering in four-inch nails into mm. big bits of wood. That's what it sounded like. 
and it just did not let up. Every now and again, it stopped, and then it would come back. And no, nobody had heard it, absolutely nobody. And I, I found that incredible. It's like, well, that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened, probably. You know, that's weirder than all the stuff I've ever seen, because there is no answer to it. Uh, they had no answer. Um, now, we obviously gave it a lot of thought. We didn't immediately go to that supernatural sort of default position. We were thinking in terms of, you know, was there some building work going on? But why would they do it in the middle of a night? Right, it just right. doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and because nobody else had heard it, that made it very, very odd. And then we got thinking about the conversation in the bar that night where they said, oh, no, no, we haven't got any spirits here. We used to have lots, but we got rid of them. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, someone's having a laugh with us here. Um, I don't think it was them. I think maybe when we were having that conversation, maybe they knew we were interested, whatever, yeah. whoever they were. They knew we were interested, and they thought, well, we put a little show on for them tonight. That's that's my thinking. Um, Could have been that time so, slip thing again, too, when the hotel was being built. You never know. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. an idea. Yeah, yeah. So it was just so strange. And um, we, we do want to go back there. Um, I can't remember what room number. In case anyone's listening, if you want to go there, can you remember what room number it was? Because people listening would probably want to go and experience it if it happens again. It, it was on the first floor. Third floor? Ah. 303. It was 303. Yeah, room 303 of the Grand Central. So, yeah, I, I, it would be interesting <laughs> to see whether anyone else has the same experience, you know. Um, so but we you, also, yeah, sorry. Well, if, if I'm just saying, everybody in the audience, if you go Eureka Springs Grand Hotel, room 303, read yeah, it out and report Grand, back Grand to Central. us. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, was it more or less opposite the. Basin Park or not? I can't remember now. Yeah, but it's a, an amazing place. If anyone's not been there, Eureka Springs is wonderful. It, Janice is appearing on the podcast whether she likes it or not. Good. Are <laughs> <laughs> you picking up her voice? Oh, yeah, we can hear her. Oh, that's cool. Um, um, well, I was just yeah, going to ask Mark Goats. We're, out, we're really out of time, but I was going to ask you uh, – What's next for you? When do you have hope to have the book out? And uh, right. definitely want to have you back on when it when it comes out. This yeah, is like a preview it. tonight. It, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I, there's so many things I sort of made a little note of to tell you, and I haven't even I haven't even brushed the surface of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to call this one. I've, I've been it's like had a working title, about twenty working titles, but I, I think I've sort of finally decided on uh, "Curious, Creepy Cornwall" because um, obviously my first book was Wyatt's Weird World, so we're going for the alliteration. There again, we go. Course. There we right. go. <laughs> and um, I think that'll be my thing for a while. And um, the mermaid thing, I probably use some of that in that book. But I'm thinking of going a bit deeper into it, into that sort of, you know, like that area that you mentioned with Joshua. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, as I say, I've got these two guys, but, you know, Joshua would, would love these two guys as well because they are so into that. I mean, they're, they're sort of intellectual heavyweights. I, I'm just like a coffee table bloke, you know, book. Do you know what I mean? That's, I, that's my skill, putting together the, into a readable form that, 
you know, I can make people laugh, I think, and I can bring I can bring the history to it, I can tell a story. And I've experienced I'm an experiencer as well, you know. But these guys are like intellectuals. They've got a bit like Joshua and people like him really. They can bring that side of it to it. And as a team, I think that this other I'm gonna call it mermaids, myths, magic and mystery or something along those lines. Um, Go with your alliteration theme. Yeah, and I and as I say, because they're Americans, they're they're both from. uh, Well, one one of the guys, Bill, is a wonderful guy. He's from. uh, Is it? Was it? Correct me, James. Kentucky is it? Where's Bill from? He he's um, Irish descent. One of one of these families that sort of went into the Appalachians and just basically stayed there forever, almost. And, and he, he still speaks a strange form of English. He's, he speaks like an oldie worldy Elizabethan English because it never really mm. developed because they didn't have many outsiders, you know. And you know, it's one of these places untouched by rule, law and order, I think. You know, he's always talking about a good, good clean headshot for anyone who steps out of line, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> they're an interesting breed. And he has lots of magic and, you know, he – he basically still uses his old folk ways, you know, and a lot of people he yep. knew did when he was growing up. He's getting old now. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that in, in, in Appalachia. A yeah. Lot of, a lot of that survived. Yeah, so we're hoping to sort of get a lot of his, um, a lot of information from him. And basically, you know, obviously he will have credit to that book. It won't be just me. As I say, I'm just, um, I don't know what, I suppose I'm the folklorist, compiler, collator, whatever you want to call it, you know. I just tell the stories. But um, I'm picking their brains because they're the guys that they've, – they've got the story from your side of the, the Atlantic. I, I've got all the Cornish stuff. I'm pretty good at that. But the <coughs> American stuff, you know, I'm, I'm just a beginner at it. So I'm using their – you know, and Janice is pretty good at that stuff too. So I've got, got a good team really. Well, so, excellent, yeah. Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we're going to close this section out to stay on the line for us. Okay, guys, thanks for thanks for having me on. It's been great. I appreciate that. Thanks, oh, absolutely, Bobby. anytime, absolutely. man. Absolutely. Uh, we'll we'll be back to close the show out on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> So that was a pretty good spectrum of topics we had tonight. Yeah. You know, start with Craig, which is always awesome, and Mark, which is all two great friends of the show, you know. Right. Um, and very interesting, very different topics. Um, yeah, I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about some, you know, ghost stuff and folklore, you know, considering it is Halloween. Oh, yeah, for sure. And all that. Yeah. Um, long show but i think we're really really worth it really cool information oh yeah i mean both those guys could have done their whole whole episode by themselves obviously they have before in the past multiple times but yeah they have um i want to uh 
I want to say, give a shout out here. We we appeared, and this will probably by the time this is actually posted, this will been this their their show have been with us have been out for a while. But cruising with steak, we were on with these guys on last Tuesday night. We're recording this on the eighth of October, and uh, it was a really good show that with them it was like how you got to cut loose and they yeah. they even got luke i even got luke to be in the sca- in the in the in the studio for them which is something i can barely do for this show it, it was fun to do something where there's like just kind of real free form no walls or restrictions right. just kind of just all of us together just kind of shooting the shit and uh-huh. going off on tangents and down rabbit holes and it was a lot of fun and talking about amish yeah the amish and yeah. yeah, so give those guys a lesson. They're, they're called Cruising with Steak. Our good friend Grim Steak, um, he's a fan of the show and a few other shows. So he had us on. Check them out. Those guys are are really doing well with their podcast. And uh, we're kind of like, it's kind of scary, man. We're kind of like influencing other podcasts now. I know. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of frightening, bastards. bro. <laughs> uh, the, the, just the responsibility that has been put upon us. So next time, guys, we're going to actually be recording this tomorrow on the 9th, but we're going to have a high strangeness roundtable. I don't know really what to expect from this. We're going to have Joshua Cutchin, Greg Bishop, Red Pill Junkie, and Adam Go Riley. A veritable brain trust. That is a that is a big brain trust. I think we could just kind of sit back on this one and just yeah, let, I'm not it, talking. let it happen. I am not talking because I, I can't hold a candle to any of those guys. <laughs> you can. You're very philosophical, my friend. <laughs> You're very philosophical. All right. So, guys, thank you so much uh, for listening. Thanks to Craig Ciccone and thanks to Mark Wyatt for coming on and his friend Janice, who we tried to get on, but she just couldn't do it, I guess. But you did get to hear her kind of in the background. Oh, yeah. She's on. She's on the show. Yeah, Put her she's in the there. Her, her voice is list there. Her. Yeah, I'll, I'll list her <laughs> on there. All right, guys. Thank you so much. And we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? 
We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.